0: Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red
1: FM. You can text 0868-104-106. Morning all paper-wise this morning. Every single front page and many of the inside pages talks, of course, of the conviction of Karen Harrington for the murder of baby Santina. Uh, She got life for Santina's murder, the murder of the two-year-old. And many, many papers this morning go into quite an amount of detail. The headlines include Mother's Torment on the front of this morning's Echo, the torment of Bridget O'Donoghue, the mother of Santina Cauley. They talk of justice for Santina, Uh, photographs of many of the different family members and indeed Santina herself. I see uh, many of the papers also Uh, talking of Detective Inspector Danny Coughlin and Sergeant Brian Maher. Uh, After the verdict was announced yesterday, they spoke from the courthouse steps. I'll have more on that. Uh, Many papers, of course, carry photographs of uh, the murderer Karen Harrington, uh, who, of course, denied any involvement um, uh, in the death of Santina. Uh, Barry Roach in the Irish Times has many, many stories and many uh, backstories involving uh, the entire case and the life of uh, the Cahillies and, indeed, um, Uh, uh, Bridget and uh, quite extensive coverage of the life of uh, Karen Harrington uh, by Barry Roach in the Irish Times also today. Uh, Front page says, uh, you know, 38 year old woman uh, sentenced to life imprisonment after the conviction of uh, for the murder of a two year old girl who was found unresponsive with extensive injuries in her apartment uh, in the city three years ago in the suburbs. Karen Karen Harrington, it was seven men and four women at the Central Criminal Court sitting in Cork, returning a unanimous verdict. According to Barry Roach, a total of four hours and 45 minutes uh, they were deliberating. Uh, Radford Eagle in The Independent says a night of alcohol and drugs ended with the murder of a toddler. And he says the toddler who died from traumatic brain damage and severe spinal cord injury after suffering a total of 53 different injuries at Harrington's flat in the hours of the morning. Um, and it was fueled by an alcohol and drug fueled night that led to the horrific beating to death of an innocent and defenceless two-year-old. Uh, he says in this morning's Independent that Santina's father, Michael Cawley, said he would be haunted by the memory of finding his daughter lying battered, Uh, and blood spattered on a blanket in his then-girlfriend's apartment. And the Red Tops this morning, guilty of Santina's savage murder. Cruel Harrington jailed for life over the death of the helpless two-year-old. And many papers asked the question that was posed over and over. Uh, Indeed, even in conversations with me uh, when uh, Bridget was in studio back in 2019. Back then she was saying, how could anybody do this to a little baby? Well, yesterday she was saying, how could she this to a little baby, the torment as her murderer, her daughter's murderer is caged. Uh, this morning's uh, Sun front page, how can you hurt a baby like this? Um, and there are just many, many different stories making the papers today. I'll return to it in a few minutes' time uh, for court coverage from Barry Roach and the Irish Times. In other news stories that are making the papers and online this morning, tourism fears now. Uh, front page of this morning's uh, mail says that restaurants and bars are now considering legal action ...against the government over potential losses to trade, particularly across the summer. If you didn't know it, there are now 17,200 beds in hotels and guest houses and B&Bs that are now home to refugees as this country grapples to find a solution to the greatest humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. So 17,200 beds in hotels and guest houses and B&Bs, which normally would have gone to tourists and staycationers, have been lost to tourism. So with the lack of beds, that means that the beds that are left or available across the summer are a heck of a lot dearer. But it will also mean that there'll be less tourism around across the summer because... Where would you be going if you've got nowhere to stay? So on that basis, of course, restaurants and pubs are actually thinking, including the Restaurant Association of Ireland and the VFI, uh, to sue the government uh, because of uh, serious and potential loss of trade. They call it the perfect storm of Ukrainian refugees, the housing crisis and tourism all clashing together. Um, The only upside that I can think of, well, of late anyway, with regards to covid Is how uh, more people got to dine and to drink and to socialize outdoors. And you saw the amount of efforts that pubs put into. Got a bit of assistance from the state and the government of the taxpayer to fund their outdoor dining and drinking areas. But that law was only a temporary law. But the good news in The Independent this morning is that pubs and hotels and restaurants uh, could be gearing up for a lot longer, not just uh, the summer, but further even than that, and maybe forever. Because laws allowing customers to drink on the streets outside licensed premises will be extended. So that'll allow pubs and restaurants to continue to serve alcohol and food and alcohol and whatever in yourself, outdoors. So more of a kind of a Mediterranean feel about it. So that's got to be good news. All we need now is the sunshine to go with it. But you see the carry-on down in Kerry on the beaches of Kerry and they've got... Um, I don't know, they've got like 14 blue flag beaches down Kerryway. One in particular that I know quite well, and perhaps you do, because an awful lot of Cork people go to Glen Bay and they use Ross Bay. But of the 14 beaches now, it will be off limits to dogs and horses from 11 o'clock in the morning to 7pm from the 1st of June until the 15th of September as to do with restricting dogs that it happens actually in 50 countries that operate the blue flag program apparently uh, around Europe and maybe even around the world so Kerry are just catching up with it I don't know and I'm open to correction from you guys who would know a lot more than I would on this are there any bans on dogs uh, on Cork beaches, anywhere, across the summer or all of the time, or at particular hours like sunrise to sunset. And you've got to wonder why. I suppose it's to do with polluting the water and polluting the beaches and the bark. And I don't know if it's a, a, a noise pollution as well as dog fouling pollution. But there you have it nonetheless. That's the, the Kerry beaches for you. Uh, no dogs. Mind you, if you go to many places in Europe, you can bring dogs everywhere. You can check into a hotel with your dog. You can, you know, there are even dog hotels. I've seen signs for dog hotels. Never mind eating in restaurants with the dog sitting next to you. But beaches, apparently not. The average house price in Cork, according to the Echo, has surpassed 300,000 euro. We know that, really. The average house price in Cork is probably closer to anywhere between Three hundred and fifty and three hundred and eighty thousand euro, but there you have it nonetheless. And speaking of numbers, uh, I know one or people, one or two people amongst these figures seventy five thousand people who have walked out of A and D units, and nearly three and a half thousand of them are kids. We just couldn't wait any longer. So 75,000 walking out of Irish A&Es, just not getting seen and waiting way too long. What about those 17 drivers who amongst them has been fined 216,000 euro for failing to pay the M50 toll fees? I know we were talking uh, some months back that there was uh, a worry or a risk that they were going to toll or put cameras to tow, like the M50, on the Jack Lynch tunnel. I don't know if anything's going to come of that. But one fella racked up 497 free journeys. But the clock was ticking on him, apparently, because eventually he had to pay the fine. uh, Up to €20,500 in one case. But it's a curse of a thing, isn't it? Anything that you can drive through and you're told to remember to pay within 24 hours. I mean, it leaves you open to... I think it's just me. Forgetting, wouldn't it? You just forget, like... Papers also talk about, you know, with regards to inflation and the cost of living and issues that we spoke about yesterday, they were going to pass a ban in the UK to ban junk food deals. You know, the buy one, get one free. Um, Boris Johnson now has decided, for now anyway, they're going to scrap the ban. They're not going to ban buy one, get one free deals. Because of the cost of living crisis, they will do everything and anything to allow people to try and spend money as best they can, as wisely as they can, and as frugally as they can. And if that involves buying junk food two for one, then so be it. There's another food-related story makes the Mail today. It has to do with um, uh, the Spice Girl Victoria Beckham, Posh Bex. She says um, that she says that it's no longer de rigueur to be skinny. She says being skinny is an old fashioned attitude um, and wanting to be really thin is also yesterday, which is amazing, actually, from Victoria, because I believe that when she goes out to eat, she eats steamed vegetables. Well, there's a photograph of uh, her husband um, going up back to his mam's house yesterday for his favorite dinner as a child, which apparently, if I remember the photograph, is gammon steak with chips, peas and and a roundy slice of pineapple up on top of the gammon. I take all of that apart from the pineapple, but big, big bowl of chips next to him as well. But herself says that uh, women today want to look healthy and curvy, And they want to have some boobs and they want to have a bum. And two other uh, wives of footballers, of course, have been making the paper for weeks now. I, I don't know what you make of this. I despair at court cases the likes of Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy in court fighting it out in the Wagga the Christie high court battle. Have they more money than sense? Is there any reason at all that you can actually figure out as to why that ever went to court in the first place? Why they just didn't dust themselves down sorted out amongst themselves, and get on with their lives. I mean, they're rich enough, and they're entitled enough, and, you know, they're lucky enough to have great lives, but yet they find themselves both in court. There's one other football-related story, actually, and this is the first footballer since Justin Fashion, came out in 1990 as gay. He's a 17-year-old, fellow called Jake Daniels, a striker with Blackpool. Uh, apparently, he is the only professional footballer playing in Britain Right now, the moment, to come out as gay, there are many gay soccer players, but he 's the only one that has come out officially and Do you love that little story of some character going around painting um, British post boxes they 're red you know they're pillar post boxes. Someone's going around painting them green, and then the council has to come back and paint them red again. And this character, whoever he or she is, goes back and paints them green again. And the worry about this story with regards to the uh, the UK village is that they thought it might have been a Sinn Féin propaganda, st- <laughs> propaganda stunt after the party's election success <laughs> in the North and what have you. And they're begging and pleading, whatever it is, to stop painting the UK red post boxes green. They've had enough of it.
0: Text the Neil Prendergast show now. 86
1: Red FM. And you pick up the phone on 0818-104-106. So as I said yesterday, and I'm quoting from the Irish Times this morning, the murder, mother of a murdered two-year-old girl has questioned how anyone could kill a defenceless child. The jury convicted uh, a 38-year-old woman of Santina's murder in Cork almost three years ago and of course uh, that was um, Karen Harrington of Lakelands Crescent in Mahan and uh, right up to the very end and still she denies the murder of Santina at her apartment. Barry Roach covered the court case over the past few weeks and he's been on the air both with myself throughout the court case and indeed Mick Mulcahy over the past couple of weeks and he joins me um, for the final update on this horrible, horrible, tragic uh, death of a beautiful small little baby girl. Barry, good morning. Can I start first, if you don't mind, with uh, with regards to uh, the verdict yesterday, because clearly you were in court, I'm sure it was a packed courtroom, there was many press there, and many family members also, right?
2: Yes, Neil, yes, a uh, full courthouse is in courtroom number 6, which is on the fourth floor of the Anglesey um, Street building. So... Uh, the jury went out in the case of um, Karen Harrington. She's originally from Ravenshill Road in Manhattan, but she was address uh, for the char- for the court was at Lakelands Crescent. The jury went out. She denied the murder of Santina Colley in her apartment at Elderwood Park on the Boring Manor Road on the fifth of July two thousand nineteen. And on Friday, the jury went out after Mr Justice Michael McGrath finished his charge to them. They went out and they were deliberating for about an hour and a quarter on Friday. Uh, they were sent home early uh, on Friday, came back in yesterday, resumed their deliberations, and about 20 to 4 there was another case going on in the Central Criminal Court a rape case uh, from the city, I think or a rape case from Cork and the, the knock came to say the jury wanted to come back, so at about 20 to 4 um they came back out, and the registrar, the foreman, had they reached the verdict? And they said, they ha- he said they did, had, and that was that they'd found Karen Harrington guilty, and they'd found her guilty by unanimous verdict. Mm. Uh, they'd been out for four hours and forty-six minutes, so just under five hours, effectively over the two days. What was the reaction to that verdict? Uh, Karen Harrington didn't seem to show any visible reaction. Um, the whole place seems to be sort of respectful and silence maybe a sense of relief but there wasn't any gasps or anything like that that I could hear or sense uh, as I said it was back Cortos, uh, Santina's parents Bridgetra O'Donoghue and Maggie were there um, I would suspect it was just relief uh, certainly a since the Guardian who put a huge amount of effort into this under a uh, senior investigation officer Danny Collin. there was that sense of relief we then had an issue of whether there was going to proceed to sentencing or not or whether that was going to be adjourned to another date there was a uh, Mr Justice McGrath rose for five minutes there were some discussions between Sean Gillan, Prosecution counsel, and Brendan Grant, Defence Council and they decided to
1: proceed we had victim impact statements Our the victim impact statements also they, always follow the verdict don't they
2: they always follow the verdict but they're not always ready but they were ready yesterday so uh, Garda Brendan Ryan uh, who's the family liaison officer for Bridget Dunneau he read her statement uh, and uh, Garda, Carl Ann Callan, who was the family liaison with Michael Cawley, she read his statement. Yeah, and,
1: and I see in the Times this morning Bridget was saying she loved her rhymes, her cartoons and her barney, ah, she yeah, loves her trip to town and going to her nana's on a Wednesday.
2: Yeah, it was very, I mean, it was very human, very touching, very, she was cute for her age. You know, she mentioned that she was born on the 6th of May 2017, so her actual birthday fell during the course of the trial. She was a premature baby, she said, but she was small, but she was a fighter. This is Bridget, she was she was loved and adored by her family. The minute we saw her, she was the baby of her family, loved, cherished and spoiled by all of us, especially her nana. She loved her rhymes, her cartoons and Barney. She loved her trips at town with me and her nana on Wednesday. She'd hop in the buggy and knew, knew the routine. Uh, she knew the names of all the Teletubbies and was a happy child. Um, but then she said she related how on the morning, the 5th of July, she got a knock at the door thinking it would be Santina returning, only to find it was a guard telling her that Santina had been in an accident. She got a taxi to see you, H never imagining what she was going to face when she arrived. And um, she was met so many doctors and nurses there, didn't understand what was after happening, but eventually she said, I was told that, Satina, that Santina had passed away from her injuries and I went into a state of shock. I could not believe what I'd been told. She asked to see her and she was put into her arms and she could not believe the condition of her. She was covered, she said, in bruises from head to toe. Her hands were cold and she was so pale. And then she said, the day Santina passed away, she took part of me with her. I am devastated. My heart is in pieces and that hurt continues every day. So many times I wished I could turn the clock back. The disbelief this could have happened haunts me every day. And she recalled then her last memory of Santina hugging her and squeezing her and not wanting to leave her. And she regrets, she said, leaving her so much that day. And she wished she'd go back in time, but she never imagined, as she said, that she'd get her baby back into her arms in the situation that she did. Um, and then she said as well that uh, she questioned how anybody could do this to a child. She said she, um, I feel angry at the accused, Karen Harrington, who murdered my baby. I continuously ask myself how someone could be so cruel to a two-year-old, a soft, gentle soul. Just how can you hurt? Just how can you hurt a baby like this? Um, so that really, I suppose, went to the heart of it. Uh, Michael Colley, in his statement, uh, victim impact statement, again spoke about how. He's haunted, his life, my future's no change, he said. The plans I had for Santina was to grow up, to be a happy child, to go to school, college, and to travel the world together. No, that dream is all gone. I find it difficult to make new plans without her. The constant pain and sadness living each day without her can be a constant battle, and it's overwhelming. But he said, I'm so lucky to have had this beautiful little girl as my daughter in my life. I will always cherish these special two and a half years. And he said that Santina was brutally murdered, and the worst thing was finding her disfigured body under a blanket. I would be haunted by this horror for the remains of my life. This is beyond words. I have no words. And he said the trial itself was difficult, and we could see that when he was there because uh, he broke down several times when they were showing CCTV footage from earlier in the night of July the 4th of himself and Santina and Aldi and other occasions as well. he, you know, just was struggling to keep himself together. A harrowing case for, for the family, but I think harrowing for almost everybody involved in it. Uh, yeah. Watching yeah. it, it was a, certainly... I'm supposed to sort of... Identify one case as being more because for every family involved, obviously they're hugely traumatic. But certainly in terms of this, the fact it's a two-year-old child, and the, I mean, I, 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 I suppose I was braced for it because I, you know I've covered many know, of I've these. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. But Margaret Bolster, Dr. Margaret Bolster's evidence of the injuries was was a grim day. There was no two ways and, and you know that she was doing her job, but just cataloguing the injuries, and there were fifty-three in total: forty-nine external, four internal. And that was a tough day for everybody in there, I think. Yes, uh, and including her, Karen Harrington. Yeah, uh, you know, listening to that and just going through because Doctor Bolster is very methodical, and she went from tip to toe and back with uh, the injuries. And that was that was um, a, a, a grim day, as I say. And the cause of death, as, uh, as we said, uh, said, to Mick was uh, polytrauma, uh, blunt force trauma to the brain and to the upper um, spinal cord, and then sort of fractures to the lower limbs associated with that. Really, really a, a horrible, horrible uh, revelation, I suppose, really, on the day in, in,
1: in court. With regards to the investigation, uh, CCTV, forensics, and witnesses were so, so important. So was the work of Angarda Shikona, who apparently, you say in the Times, put in harvested and examined over 300 hours of CCTV from 70 locations in Cork City, took endless statements and investigations, and spoke to many, many witnesses. And, of course, we also heard um, over the past few weeks of the different um, conversations that were had in custody by the Gardaí with, with Harrington. Did you say in the Times that it was upwards of about 80 Gardaí involved in that investigation? They are up to 90. 90? 90.
2: Mean, I remember the morning it happened, and I was over there about, you know, eight o'clock or half eight or something like that. Uh, myself at the, at the scene outside, and but this really was a hugely impressive piece of investigation, and one that
3: one two and two.
2: Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, in in, in terms of you know, I've had this probably about thirty years now, at this stage, I reckon, covering uh, you know, rock in journalism, but certainly seeing how murder investigations have changed and the role of technology in particular is is very evident and it's m- certainly i mean there've obviously been cases in dublin uh, the graham Dwyer case and there was one in kerry where there was a lot of use uh, emphasis made in CCTV and phone records and so forth but in court terms it seems to me to be the one that certainly to my mind uh, relied heavily on CCTV. consider this, you, you, you go in there, you're, you're the Senior Investigating Officer, you're, you're Danny Collins, heading up the team with Michael O'Halloran and, and, and others, and you're, you're there on the morning, and you have a dead child in, in CUH. What do you do? So you're, you're checking out, you're keeping an open mind and everything, you don't know what's happened. So you talk to Michael Cawley, and he says he's gone around town for two hours, he comes back to discovers his child dead. So they have to check out his statement. So the other thing of course is that CCTV footage often overrides it's it's re-recording so you need to move quickly so uh, Pat Duggan or sorry uh, Pat Russell and Maurice O'Connor they got I think about 70 locations over 300 hours they had to go through that and they, my, Michael Collins' uh, account to them was that he left that sometime after 3.308, left the apartment after a row, went back to Martina Higgins' apartment to get his mobile phone. He wasn't admitted there, so he went into Cork City to try and find his cousin who was coming from Limerick. Yeah. So they then traced him, and as I say, CCD footage leaving Elderwood, uh, Crab Lane. African missions down uh, um, the uh, filling session at the end, uh, top of the marina, all over, the board, all road. and they trace it, and that stood up. Right, So his version was, that's it, and they found that. And the other thing that was critical in his case was uh, Brian Marr, the, the detective guard, who accompanied him to the hospital, brought him back home afterwards and asked him for his clothes. He handed over his clothes. So they did forensics on his clothing that he'd been wearing that night, and there was nothing on it to suggest he had any contact, or no blood or anything like that from Santina. So that enabled them at that point then to eliminate him as suspect yeah. particularly because when you match that then with the witness statements from the um dylan Olly, who's living next door uh well there's upwards of over yeah. 40
1: witnesses and some of them are the, quite the, crucial
2: cru- crucial the ones in elderwood who were telling uh, the Guardi we heard this we had this row we heard uh voices commotion dylan Olly saying there was a woman was shouting she was roaring she was taunting a child when they matched their times for that and what was critical in this was a woman called Rona Campbell. She's an analyst, a civilian, but she actually matched the witness statements, times, phone calls and things like that with the CCTV of Michael Cauley inside and uh, around the city centre. So that proved that he was not there at the critical time. So he was eliminated. Then what was critical was CCD footage. And one camera in particular was crucial in, in this. It's a camera in Clan Rickard, which is on the city side of um, uh, Elderwood. Facing back, and that actually captured the. Uh, Karen Harrington lived in a duplex apartment on the third and fourth floor of Elderwood Park. And there were two entrances one on the third, on a concrete entrance uh, um, corridor, and then a fourth, the second entrance or the rear end exit, I suppose, a fire escape, or whatever, on the fourth, on a wooden floor. But that camera captured both of those, and that camera was with that. Donald Daly was able to say, another girl guy that. Uh, Karen Harrington came back from Martina Higgins' apartment after the row and she entered at 1.36 and she didn't leave until 5.08. That's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was tied into the house for that period. Then matching that with the statements of evidence from um, the witnesses, Del Lully, uh, Aoife Niamh McGailey, Brian Luttrell, who made a recording, uh, Martin uh, McSweeney, uh, Georgina Fogarty, Philip Sloan, who heard things, they were able to say that had happened during those hours. Uh, what was critical then, the third aspect of the... the the, the, the well, Sorry, go back to the forensic side of it then. What was critical was uh, Stephen Denny, the scene's a of crime officer, and they preserved the scene and uh, recovered items and material, and one of the critical things that they recovered was a pair of pyjama pants belonging to Karen Harrington, which had uh, blood stains on one leg, and there were Five uh, s- uh, blood stains on on the leg, and one of them was. Four of them uh, were a match for Karen her, Herring's own blood, and she said she dropped the glass and cut her foot. That's why her blood was on it. But the fifth one had Santina Callie's uh, blood stains on it, and that was an issue then for her to explain.
1: and Was it that fifth splatter of blood? Was it put it beyond yeah. reasonable doubt?
2: Well, no, there was another element to it then because Santina had these injuries, but how did she sustain them? And Margaret Bolster's evidence then was critical in that because she said quite clearly that these injuries, they were so extensive on Santina's little body and were everywhere that they couldn't have resulted from an accident such as a fall and that it had to be forcefully inflicted. So it was quite clear that nobody could say that what happened to Santina in the apartment at that time was accidental it was the result of a forceful infliction of those and she was asked by Brendan Graham the Defence counsel, could she say what was blunt force trauma and she explained that it was uh, pressure brought by when somebody is struck by a, uh, an object or a weapon or when somebody is struck against something and she said because notwithstanding the extensive nature of the, of the injuries there wasn't actually any um, external Injury, sorry, on uh, her, 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 her. She believed that it was more likely that she was struck against something mm.
1: than being struck with. And something. was it that they, they were managed to prove that there was nobody else in the apartment for them and it to was our that period. Process of elimination, and I mean, it was a very logical.
2: And I mean, the, 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 the guy who sort of coordinated all this is Detective uh, Garda Cormac crotty who he was the incident room coordinator. He prepared the file effectively. And it was presented by uh, Sean Gillan in a very logical, coherent fashion. What happened? We, we work on what we know about Michael Cauley. He's ruled out. We have his statement that he came back at 5.08, discovered his daughter lifeless, Karen Harrington yes. leaves, and it's a process. There's nobody else there then. Yeah, okay. Except Karen okay. Harrington. Okay. And uh, that's essentially what the evidence they proved. I mean, Sean Gillan, in the summing up, made that point. He sort of said, you know, it's a not an easy case, it's a tragic case, but in some respects it's a straightforward case. Mm. And he listed off uh, the CCDV footage, the forensics on the clothing and so forth. And he had this quote that, um, if I can just find it here, or no. Was it's that easy. the raindrops quote? Was the it? raindrops quote. Yeah. Yeah,
1: like somebody it. walking between the raindrops convincing herself she's no. not getting wet and the only person she is convincing herself and the raindrops are evidence and she stands drenched, soaked no. to her neck in the evidence.
2: That's exactly it, and um, he summarised that. I suppose, uh, I'll just uh, I'll jump ahead and come back to something then. He very much focused on that line of evidence, that spine of, of evidence and facts he said in the case in his summing up. Brendan Grant, for the defence, had a lot less to play with, so he tended, I think it's fair to say, in his summing up, focused more on legal principles, and he was saying that uh, effectively, you know, she was entitled to Presumption of Innocence, but didn't just protect Karen Harrington, but it protects all of us and that they couldn't really go and convict her unless they were satisfied beyond reasonable doubt and he maintained there was reasonable doubt. The case, the state case, I suppose the other fascinating aspect of this or the interesting one was we heard members of interview with um, Karen Harrington Uh, I'm trying to remember what day it was now, was it Tuesday?
1: There were numerous.
2: There were five interviews with her. We heard memos read out by Sean Gillan the first four and we heard him read out the fifth. But what was really critical then was they played to the jury the video recording of the fifth interview. It went on for about 90 minutes and the two detectives involved in it, Detective Garda Brian uh, Marr and Detective Garda Dave Noonan and they're both trained to level four interviewing techniques and what was really interesting um, in that was Dave Noonan afterwards was asked about the technique and he explained that in your first interview with a suspect you establish a rapport and relationship. The second one you try and elicit from them what they say happened without suggesting anything to them so that the information is coming un- uncontaminated. Then over the third and fourth you start introducing the evidence that your investigation team had gathered and then in the fifth you seek to get them to commit to a version of what they to commit to their account of what happened in the light of the evidence you present presented. But you said crucially, the Martin thing is you're not seeking an admission; you're seeking to establish the truth. And that was very evident in the fifth interview. It was, I it went on for two and a half hours. I think the jury were shown about two hours of it, really, really emotional interview. Karen Harrington, she's been arrested. It's the eighth of July. It's three days after Santina's died. She's technical on a Barragada Station. What was interesting was the camera is actually on the roof, on the ceiling of the room. So there's one camera in the ceiling, there's another the side. So the main view is from the top down of the participants. Eddie Brooke, the Defence Solicitor, is, is present with her to ensure that everything is done properly. But then there's a side uh, window, as it were, where you just see her reaction. But the wall... Guards have photographs of the crime scene on the wall. They bring her over for various stages to show her those and say, "What do you say about this? The earring that's found, the tufts of hair, and that." I mean, Karen Harrington was really, really distraught during that. Several times, she she became became sick. or said she was going to get sick, and one said she actually had to go did. to the dustbin mm-hmm. to to um to, 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 to throw up. But you know, they asked her, and, and it was interesting watching the progression in the interview because her initial account, and we'd heard it earlier from. She'd said it to Sergeant Michelle O'Leary uh, when she brought her into the bridal voluntarily in the morning, and we heard it from um, Brendan Graham in cross-examination, which was that she came home from Martina, Harrington, Martina Higgins' um, apartment at one thirty-six, went to sleep on the couch, was woken up by Michael Cawley coming back at 3.05, uh, 3.06. Uh, they had a row. He left Santina. He went off into town as it turned out, she put Santina down. It was very warm and, she took, and roasting hot, so she took off her tops, but left her in her nappy, put her on the blanket and fell asleep. And she said the next thing she knew was that she woke up at five past, or eight minutes past five, Michael colleagues there saying, what have you done, what have you done, my child is dead, what have you done? So that was her version, that yes. she was asleep for the two-hour period. Yeah. So yeah. they put that to her, that was her opening, Positions, but then they said, "Well, look, we have Dylan only saying in a row with you at this. We have Nev, uh, or if saying she met you at, at uh, around three twenty. You were very distressed. Her, uh, she said, the, 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 the she said she conceded that Santina was in her hysterics, was crying, but she said that any noise that anyone heard from her apartment with uh, Collie was when Collie returned from the flat after three a.m. I was roaring and shouting because I had an argument with Michael. I was ranting and raving to myself after he left. She said." Yeah. Not she really was put in Lally's statement that she was taunting Santina, and she said, "I would no reason to taunt Santina." And again, she reiterated that she had no recollection of what happened to Santina, and she did not injure or kill the child in the time that she was with her. She then conceded, when they sh- spoke with CCTV, that she was the only one who was in the apartment for the two-hour period approximately with Santina when Santina was injured. But again, she insisted she didn't know Santina sustained her injuries, and she wa- didn't hurt or harm the child. And this went on over the bones of two hours though played to the jury, and, you know, it was a very tense, emotional interview, uh, and in it, uh, Karen Harrington, she adopted what was almost like a, a constant refrain, which was that she didn't taunt hurt, her, her or kill Santina I don't know what happened she said I have no recollection of what happened I wouldn't harm a child I didn't cause any injury to Santina I didn't cause any injury to anyone I know 100% I would not hurt a child and we'd heard evidence earlier from her uh, sisters how she at the age of 15 during a family crisis had effectively raised them uh, as, a, as a parent and I was talking to people in Man over the weekend and again this. were People were talking. were shocked. Said were shocked when she was charged. <laughs> Can I just
1: ask you about that? Because you wrote a lengthy article. Perhaps it's, on, perhaps it's the online article where oh, yeah, you actually you actually look at um, her her life, um, well, particularly like her young says, life as the role like the role of yeah. a parent bringing up her younger siblings in the family home in Mahan.
2: Yeah, but uh, the, the thing that emerged from talking to people there was that people were genuinely shocked. One one person said to me, We just can't fathom it, because she had a reputation for being a childminder. People used to get her to babysit, and a friend of hers, Yvonne Walsh, whose house she went to on the morning, uh, about six o'clock when she left the Elderwood, she said that she'd known Karen since she was a child, and she was the only one, apart from her own mother, that she ever would trust to raise her Mm. Mm. her child. So it was very much at odds with the reality of what happened the history that she had was of somebody who was caring of children and so forth and Brendan Graham in his summing up actually made that point he said you know character is important in this she's somebody and the guards confirmed it she was somebody who never had any history of violence she was somebody who cared for children so that was to her it was an argument he was making in her defence but just to go back to the point yeah, then yeah. in in the interview as I said, Dave Noonan was doing the questioning. Brian Bar was taking the notes. But Dave Noonan put it to her. Well, okay, you say you're asleep, but we have the null of us saying you were awake. Do you accept that? She sort of conceded she was. Then they then said about the forensics on the leggings, and she said she had no recollection of taking off the pajama pants that was found. She had no idea how it got there. She but she would go a certain step. She'd go with them each step they presented to her, except that final step to concede that. It could only have been her to cause injuries. And it was like, my, my, my take and in my interpretation was she was so shocked and horrified at what happened to Santina that... You know, as I say, she went to, uh, along with them in terms of the, she was alone with Satina, the Yes, but she, she couldn't take that final step and admit to herself that this had to be what happened.
1: What we say in the Times, the closest to an explanation came from Harrington herself when she was asked by Detective Garda Noonan about what the evidence was. What did she yes, say? She,
4: she, she, she
2: said, she conceded that it was all beginning to look, the
1: evidence was all heading towards her,
2: and she said, he asked her what does it say, and she, her final word, or, her words in this was, this all says to me that I went mad. And that was the closest, I think, they got, and we as a, as well, a jury and people covering the case, got to an acknowledgement that she was responsible for what happened. I mean, it, it, it was uh, it's fascinating because it sounds sort of detached, but it was just extraordinary to watch somebody who would go so far in terms of admitting what happened, but then is still and remains still in complete denial as to what happened. <laughs> Yesterday at the end, after the sentence, after the Victim um, impact statements, and I was watching Karen Harrington during that, um, when... Uh, Bridget O'Donoghue's statement was being read out. She was, she was, her, her, her lips were quivering and she was wiping away tears. You know, I mean, the woman is not, uh, she was, uh, well, sorry, from my perspective, at times she comes in, has a big sheaf of newspaper, of, of papers and so forth, is taking notes. Other occasions, she seemed t- sort of detached and remote from it. But then there are occasions when she's quite clearly horrified by what she's hearing and is quite emotional. She was quite emotional, I thought, during that, without, wailing or, or crying out loud but she was wiping my tears but the point I was coming to was Brendan Graham in response then to uh, the victim impact statement, 7 said judge there's nothing I can say uh, given my client's stated position i.e. that she didn't murder Karen Her- didn't murder Santina uh, and I have no instructions so he was very brief what was interesting as well I suppose and this is where I'm jumping back a bit now was after the prosecution closed its case we didn't know whether Karen Harrington would go to the witness box or not, she did very briefly, uh, but very briefly, Brendan Graham, in his direct examination of her, she was—I was looking at the clock. It was twelve fifty-six something. She was still. She was. He was finished. It was still twelve fifty-six. He asked her one question: "What are you saying to the court?" "I'm saying that I didn't murder Car- I didn't murder Santina Colley." And has that been your position? He asked her two questions. Sorry, that was the first. What do you are you, do you want to say that I didn't murder Santina Colley? And second question is: There was. Um, has that always been your position? Yes, that's always my position. Mm. That's all he asked her. Yeah. Then went to Sean Gillan, prosecution counsel, who, again, I mean, Gibbon, we had had, I suppose, about 14, what, 12 days of evidence at that stage. He only, his cross-examination lasted 15 minutes or 14 minutes or so, but he put it to her. But the CCDD, did she accept she was the only person there? She agreed eventually she was. She uh, was, would she accept that Santina was uninjured when Michael Cawley left? She said she couldn't say. He, he began actually by saying, you say you didn't kill Santina Colley. Who did? And she said she didn't know. Yeah. yeah, But she had no recollection. She said he asked her, particularly given her uh, acceptance that she had changed Santina's clothing, and taken off her top and uh, pajama bottoms, because how come, how could she not notice the w- injuries that we'd heard listed by Dr. Bolster, the Crucial, 15th yeah. and she said she couldn't, but she said, when I envision Santina, I don't envision her with injuries or uh, blood or, or bruises, so she couldn't offer any explanation on that, and it was, I mean, she didn't, you know, he, he's an expert counsel, and he really did do a fine job in yeah. that. I don't think it was critical in that. I think a lot. It, it wasn't. Well, I suppose I, who can say with the jury? But certainly, there was a huge amount there for them to work on. Before that, this didn't help her case in terms of trying to explain it. Again, she rec- said she had no recollection of it. So that's what the jury were left to deal with at the end of whatever it was—thirteen days of uh, Friday, thirteen, yeah, thirteen days of evidence—and they went out on the Friday, as I say an hour and a quarter and then continued yesterday and came back at about 20 to 4 and uh, with the verdict which it, it was a strange uh, as i say i sort of covered a lot of you know i reckon probably about a dozen murder cases uh, i would have thought simply by virtue i mean some of the moments in it just to, to recap stephen denny the um seems a crime uh investigator miles moore and the exhibit officer came up at one point and handed him an exhibit back and he hand, he brought out or he opened it and took out Santina's top uh, pink sparkly top a, a toddler aged 12 to 18 months she was just over two years and he held it up and I mean you could there was, I once said it was audibly audible gas but everybody it just was right tiny there, wasn't it? it was tiny like this Santina was a mite you know that's all she was and as Margaret Bolton said she was 47 centimetres 10 kilos like you know it's about 18 inches she was tiny tiny and then you think what happened to her um, so there were moments like that, but um, what was strange about it as a case, I felt at the same time, it was clearly, as I say, I would have thought one of the more distressing cases heard in Cork in a long, long way. But there was a sort of curious lack of tension at the same time. It was very emotional. I'm not denying that at all. hugely emotional for everybody. But there was a sort of a sense of like there was no edge to the defence, and that they didn't have instructions, so they were sort of hamstrung in that regard. I think. But there was no sense of there was a sense of no, you never know with juries because you know, juries are individuals and who knows what they bring to. But there was a sort of a sense of it. And, you know, I felt a sort of an inevitability going to mm. the conclusion. But So there wasn't that. I mean, you know, yeah, no, the other part of that lack of tension, I suppose, was the manner in which it was conducted. The tone of it by both Sean Gillan and Graham was very respectful, very dignified. It wasn't a narcy sort of case. And mm. Sometimes you can get nobody was shouting or roaring mm. in cross-examination or anything like that. He was very respectful. And actually, Judge, or Mr. Justice McGrath, commented on that in his, um, his comments when he was sentencing, that he paid tribute to both of them for the dignified manner in which they had um, mm-hmm. conducted the case. And it, is, it would have been a difficult case. You know, I think they, they hit the right note, both prosecution-wise and defence-wise okay. in that. Okay. And uh, he paid tribute then to Michael Cawley for his dignity and courage in giving his evidence in clearly distressing circumstances, and to Richard O'Donnell for sitting through some hugely distressing stuff. His comment, I suppose, just in terms of it was a shocking case he found where, uh, I'm just finding the exact quote now, Neil, a defenceless two-year-old had been killed in a... uh, Sorry, I'm just uh, trying to find the exact quote now, and I can't find it, of course. uh, But it was a shocking... um, The murder of Santina Colley, a defenceless two-year-old child, is truly shocking. It goes against nature for parents to bury a child, but to lose a child in these circumstances is beyond description. The extent of the terror to which Santina was subjected and the brutal nature of her death. I have no doubt Santina will live long in the memories of all those who knew and loved her. She will continue to be loved by her family and friends.
1: And, of course, that is an aspect that um, Bridget has spoken about yesterday and also spoke to me about in 2019 as to... What was Santina thinking in those final moments?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's unimaginable, and mm. I think you'd, um, you know, you could only but be distressed if you try to dwell on that. Um, so you, even as a, a third party outside, of, who knows what the poor woman herself is yeah. haunted mm. as is Michael Cally. Okay. Um, okay, It's just a, it's a case. I think that uh, I think everybody was relieved. Uh, that it's, it's over, that would be the sense I oh got. Okay, and on uh, behalf them, of family, us? I mean, they're, they're going to have to, you know, it's just another step along a road for them, but yeah. I mean, it's a long road
1: for them, you know. It's okay. a long road for Cardinal Okay. Well, you know. Listen, thank you thank you so much for covering the, the trial for us, for everybody listening over the past, um, past four weeks or so. Just one text on this actually probably sums it up. A listener in France, John says, can you please thank Barry Roach for all his emotional and hard work on this case and that he should take a break? and look after himself, because uh, it's it's a difficult case for anybody to be present for, um, particularly the amount of detail that you had to consume. So thank you for that, Barry. I do appreciate it, as always. Thanks, Dave. On the best. Barry Road, sure. Southern Correspondent uh, with the Irish Times. Hey, it's Dave. Join me weekdays from four
0: for Dave Max Drive, where I'll help get you home or give you a little lift at home. Big hits, loads of fun
1: features and traffic info. What more could you need? Join me weekdays from four. Dave Max Drive.
0: Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now.
1: 086-8104-106. Red FM. Staying for a while with the conviction of uh, Karen, Har- Karen Harrington for the murder of baby Santina uh, Callie Of course, the papers have it in quite an amount of detail, as you well know, at this stage. And I was chatting with Barry Roach before 10 with regards to a recap of the trial and the verdict handed down uh, yesterday. Um, yesterday, then, after the court case, um, there was um, uh, some uh, comment made by members of the Guardish Shakana. You, ha- you can't help but think, actually, because a text here, interestingly, say, my heart goes out to the first Gardaí to respond to that incident as well. And now, thankfully, it's all over for them, says a texter. Uh, and I suppose in, in, often in the past people are critical of the Gardish Chicana, but I think this gives a real insight as to the work that the Gardish can do, how minuscule and detailed their work is and how slow and laborious and uh, the attention to, to detail that's needed to get a, you know, to get a case like this and a killing like this uh, into court over 90 uh, members of Wungardish worked on this. And we should we should remember that. Uh, but yesterday, after the verdict, Detective Inspector Daniel Coughlin um, gave a statement uh, from the uh, courthouse steps. And I want to thank Paul Byrne from Virgin Media News for
5: the audio. So the murder of Santina Cahillie has had a profound impact on Santina's extended family and across the community. Wungardish notes the decision... The court has made today in the conviction and sentence of Karen Harrington for the murder of Santina. The early provision of statements, CCTV, social media clips, doorbell cameras and cooperation with House-to-House inquiries greatly aided this investigation. I would like to particularly thank the dedicated investigation team who have worked on this case for almost three years justice for Santina was always the ultimate goal for the team since her murder on the 5th of July 2019. This was a particularly emotive case for the members that attended the scene and the investigation team, many having children of a similar age. Santina was always in our thoughts. We would like to again publicly express our sympathies to Santina's family and Angara Chicano will continue to support them as they continue to grieve for Santina. as Detective Inspector Daniel Cahillan from the courthouse
1: steps yesterday. That was followed then by um, solicitor Donald Daly, uh, who represented Bridget O'Donoghue, who would be Santina's uh, mammy. He spoke yesterday, and Bridget stood next to him as he spoke, actually, and she looked so sad, so distraught, so bewildered, and so upset. And this is what Donald Daly had to say. <laughs>
2: I've been asked by Bridget, mother of Centina, to make a very brief statement in respect to this matter. She would like to thank the Guardi for their professionalism and humanity throughout this case. She especially wishes to mention Garda Brendan Ryan, Detective Cormac Potty, Detective Inspector Danny Collin. She would also like to thank her neighbours for their support throughout this nightmare. She will be forever in debt to the first responders and the medical staff of CUH who fought so long and so hard to save Santina's life. Uh, She has said all there is to say in her victim impact report and doesn't wish to make any further comments. She now wishes simply to get on with her life, to mourn Santina with her children.
1: Thank you very much. Yesterday afternoon, um, Santina Cawley was murdered on the 5th day of July in 2019 and Bridget O'Donoghue is too upset to speak after the trial and the verdict yesterday and acknowledge and respect that. Uh, but let's not forget Santina herself um, and her short, short life. And 11 days after the murder and the death of her daughter, I spoke in studio with Bridget. Uh, and we got a real insight in, into uh, Santina's short, very short, but much loved life. Thank you so much for coming in, Bridget. You're welcome. It's been a, a horrific 10 days for you. How are you bearing up?
3: Well, I'm trying to keep strong for my kids, but my heart inside is broken. My world is destroyed. What happened to my baby?
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. You know, I have the eldest girl, she's 12. I have three boys.
1: Candace, Michael, Patrick and Thomas.
3: And she was the youngest. So my daughter was looking for a girl, her sister.
1: Yeah, her baby sister.
3: Her baby sister.
1: What do you say to them?
3: Like, they all know about it, you know. Their hearts are broke. Yeah. Because she used to put a smile on their face. She used to play with them. My youngest little fella, he was out in the hospital with me when... Because he ran into a taxi with me. That was Michael, he's only 10. And he hold her in his arms as well.
1: But for any parent, it's got to be the worst nightmare to see the guards calling to your door. Is that what? Yeah, at seven
3: o'clock in the morning, a Friday morning, seven o'clock that morning, the guards banged on the door. And I woke up and I said, Yeah, Garda. And he said, It's your Santina, your daughter. So I put my hand to my head. I said, Garda, what happened? He said, I can't tell you that, you have to go to the hospital to find that out. So when I went to the hospital... That was all, the
1: longest journey ever, mm, i
3: I got a taxi straight out to the hospital. Me and my son Michael, he's only 10. He jumped in with me for support, you know, because he'd know I'd fall down weakness, you know. So we went to that private room. There was a lot of doctors around me. They said, Santina's out of passing away, she's dead. So I broke down.
1: But she was still on a life support? No, no,
3: it was just kind of an auction just to show like that she was dead, like she was pronounced dead, but it was just kind of like ear, just to, like her heart stopped beating. Yeah, yeah. And they said, even if her heart was still beating, she would have been brain damaged yeah. and she wouldn't be Santina so, no more.
1: Yeah, so they brought you in to see her.
3: They explained and they brought me in to see her. So I said, They said, you want to hold her? Of course, I want to hold my baby, he said. So when I grabbed her and I holded her, I could feel all the bruises and damage and the dents in the back of her head, you know, and all the bruises, her nose and cuts and her neck, her body, and the blanket fell off her leg, and all the bruises all over her body. She was beaten to death.
1: From the top of her head to her toes. All the top,
3: from every part of her. And her eyes was opened. And I was like, I mommy's here. Wake up. I'm sorry. I said I was not there for you. It's not my fault. You know? My heart is just broken. I may look strong from outside for my kids' sake. But inside me will never heal. Not these people just come forward over these months has done it to my yeah, child.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. So you're holding the broken body of your two-year-old daughter. Yeah, I am. And I imagine it's hard to even believe that this is happening, that you'd feel as if you're still trying to wake up, that yeah. you're in some kind of a nightmare.
3: I can't, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't I, can't, I can't. I just can't. I was rocking her. I was rocking her. I thought to wake up. She no, she was gone, and I could not believe she was gone, cause her eyes were still opened. I know she went through an awful lot of pain by just looking at her.
1: Because of the bruising and the damage.
3: I had, the damage. Damage, I had to get a ponylick for her for her lay of coffin.
1: Is that like a scarf or something?
3: You no, know, a ponylick. polar neck. I bought her a beautiful pink dress with you know. Because that's what she is, pink, like a little angel, like, you know?
1: Mm. Little Barbie, you the call her.
3: Little Barbie. It, is, her name is Santina, Eileen Barbie. That's because she was so cute and adorable. And she always had a smile. She never that's complained. That
1: photograph that we all see. Mm. Beautiful photograph of her smiling face.
3: She always is smiling. She never complained. That's why I can't understand why some animal or monster could kill a baby that never complains. You oh.
1: How did you process it then for the hours and days that followed? I mean, it, it was a stage when you would have to go and pick out a little coffin, yeah?
3: Yeah, I did. I picked out her coffin, a casket. And I, I thank everyone that donated.
1: You're Wait. more than welcome. Did you have to go over to a Connor's to literally pick one out?
3: Yes, I picked out her coffin. It's a steel um, casket, coffin. Um, all her flowers, I picked out all her flowers.
1: And Jordan. she wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't staying with you, was she not now or with your um, friend or anything? Your
3: basically, mom? she was in hospital. hospital, um, she fell down my mum's three steps and it was an instant she kind of broke her little leg. Her femur I think. Yeah, because you. she started to walk, she was only one and a half Yeah. and that was just a totally accident because she ran after her brothers and sisters because she's very fond of and them. she
1: fell down the stairs.
3: Yeah, just three steps. And I was out the hospital for the whole week with her. I was a week inside hospital with her.
1: You're not eating. You're no, not sleeping. I
3: can't. I can't stomach it. I can't.
1: No I'm sleep just, at all. You're not snatching. I'm it? just
3: getting a kind of no sleep. But I'm tossing and turning and I'm waking up and I'm walking around. And I don't know what to do.
1: Your and, morning, your daughter.
3: Yeah, my daughter. Cause there's no justice there for her yet.
1: Yes, but you need to allow that to take its course. You're encouraging whomever they are Whoever to they confess, are. They confess, tell the truth. Yeah, Exactly. And give peace. They have
3: to have guilty conscience on their head.
1: What about the the outpouring of grief in Cork and the amount of people that went through the removal mm. and also, you know, uh, to the North Chapel?
3: Oh, I thank them very much because they're... They've done an awful lot for oh. me to help me and pick me up. And I thank all the guards and detectives for what they're doing and all the people that donated and the people that stood by me and went to the church, do you know?
1: And to, where is she buried now?
3: She's buried in Kilcully.
1: And did you see her going down into the ground?
3: I did, yeah. And my youngest, he's five, and he said she's not going down there, ma'am. She shouldn't be down there. And he's only five. He said, we'll go to monkey mess. He said to her. He, he don't realise because he's only young. Mm. But it's, my eldest are taking it rough. Like, you know, I said she's gone to the angels, the gods, but they said, ma'am, we need to find out what happened to her mm. and who done this to her.
1: And in in the casket, did you put things that were close to her? Things all that her teddy loved?
3: bears that she loved, all her stuff. They went in? They went in with her and went down with her.
1: Yeah, yeah. teddy bear, Peppa Pig, yeah.
3: everything. Barney, she loved Barney, she loved the teddy tubbies. She always sing Barney's song, which is lovely because that's a big happy family and you know.
1: I love you, you love yeah, me.
3: Yeah, all a happy family. Yeah. You know, she was just an age. she was so bright. And she never complained, she no. never cries. All she wanted is what she wanted. She'd get her brother's phone her put her hand out there because she, whatever she wanted, they'd give it to her because they loved her so much, you know. She was the baby of the family.
1: And are you a religious girl?
3: I yeah, am, yeah. yeah. Very religion.
1: Do you believe that she's somewhere else now, at, at peace and happy somewhere else?
3: She is with our Lord and angels, yeah. I believe so. I believe she's watching over me.
1: She had, she should have had a very long life, though.
3: That's what I'm saying. I had an awful lot of plans for her. Play school, school, you know, future, life. She's too young. Know? Mm. She's only turned two since May. Her life is gone. Mm. You know? I just... I can't understand why they do this to a little baby mm. and they still walk in the streets mm. and it's not right.
1: Will you be able to cope with the other children? Do you have help?
3: Oh yeah, I have plenty help, yeah. I am strong for my kids and they knows that, but it's inside me my heart is broke. You know, I cope for my children, I do the best for my children. I bring them to the cinema, I give them money I brings them hair, trying to get their mind off things, but they're kind of easing off a bit because they know, like, the angels are looking after her, and they seen the photos of yesterday, they said, Ma'am, her, her, it's beautiful, her grave is beautiful. Mm. What Santina would love was that pink, mm. you know? Uh,
1: uh, did she look beautiful when she was in the, in the casket? No. No?
3: No, because when everyone was crying to help her, the bruises started, you know, the makeup. Yes. It started coming off her, where the bruises was coming. So, and her lips was.
1: Because her teeth were gone?
3: Gone, yeah. Yeah. So, it wasn't her, like, you know, it didn't look like her. Because it took a week for her to be released.
1: Because they had to do a post mortem. Yeah, don't? exactly.
3: I understand that. But still. It didn't look like my little angel, you know? You really
1: right. are, you really are trapped in a nightmare, aren't
3: you? I am, I'm just in shock. Like I often leave a bag there and someone say, oh you left your bag there Bridget. You have to understand now I just lost my little toddler. Someone murdered my baby.
1: She didn't fall asleep, she didn't fall asleep and die in her sleep or you
3: anything? Know? she got beaten to that. I seen it for myself. All her bruises, all over her body. I have to buy a poultice lick for the child's hands and inside her dress, which was not nice. Yeah. Because she used to never wear licks. Did licks.
1: The, did, the, did the people in the hospital who worked on trying to save her life tell you about the injuries? Did they describe her death to you?
3: No. No, no they said they had no information until they'd done the post-art. You know, check it out. Yeah. I didn't get no information yet. That's what I'm grieving for: is what happened to her, who done it to her, and why done it? Why did it do this to a two-year-old baby? And it is a baby. Yeah, barely she can she can't talk, speak for herself. You know?
1: Do you think of how she must have been feeling when this was happening? That's
3: what I. That's what's going through my 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 heart when she got beaten. What way did she feel when she got hit? She never got touched. She was always treated like a little baby angel. She was never touched. Her hair was golden, you know, red curly hair. She was never touched. She was always being up, brought up soft. So it hurted me to see what pain she went through.
1: And for how long?
3: And for how long, I don't know. I bring a baby to a house party.
1: And do you think she may have been calling you out, calling...
3: Yes, she mean? often did. She often rang the phone and say, Ma'am, nine. you know, but I won't be on the phone. Because... Um, do
1: you think she was calling out for you that she
3: night? Wa- I'd say she was, yeah. She was.
1: But how does that make you feel?
3: It makes me sad that I wasn't there for her, you know. It's not my fault. I just want justice. I want justice for my child. I want the people, or any people, I have no information of my child, what happened to my baby, to come forward, please come forward and tell me what happened to my baby.
1: Now you know that somebody um, was uh, questioned, taken into custody, questioned, released that's, without charge. That's right, that yeah. broke
3: my heart. Yeah. When they got released... That broke me down more.
1: Does that make you angry?
3: It don't make me angry.
1: Are you angry about any of this?
3: I'm very in shock. I cannot be angry. You know, I'm my world is just destroyed from a white little baby girl. All I can do now is look after my four kids. And think about I go up to our grave every day. Do you? I do. I go up to our grave every day and bring up strawberries later on because that's just, that's the last thing she was eating. My mom bought her, bought her strawberries.
1: Do you think you'll spend a, a lot of time there?
3: Up there, yeah. yeah. Of course I
1: will. Because you, you feel close to
3: her? I feel so close to her because like, she was my angel. All my kids are my my, my angels but she was the baby and it hurts, my brother, it hurts her brothers sisters. You know, the same mm. with Santina.
1: But you'd have aunts and uncles and grandparents. Oh, you?
3: they're all there for support. I have a lot of support everywhere. They keeps coming to me, supporting me. So, only for them, I would have been lost. You mm. know? So, I I'm 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 imagine like
1: that things will get easier.
3: I get live done. with my mum as well, so she's good, very good support yeah. as well.
1: Yeah. So. Are no. you getting any medical help or medical care?
3: Um, After when all this is finished, I'm going to counselling. You know? Because I'm going to break down probably, you don't know, I could, the tears could just come out of me and break down. At least my counsellor could talk to me. I keep me strong. I am very strong. <laughs> it's just inside my heart is breaking, but my kids... The rest of my kids, I'm going to protect them for the rest of my life over losing my baby daughter. Mm. Mm. You know? And
1: for now, with all of the grief and the mourning and the tragedy and the nightmare that you're in and the sleeplessness and not eating, you want justice.
3: I want justice. Yeah.
1: For Santina.
3: For Santina. My yeah. baby Santina.
1: And that's in the hands of the Gardi. Yep. Yeah. 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 To get on with the work that they're doing, to
3: get yeah, to get everything and right, and do
1: it slowly and meticulously, and
3: make sure they get the person rightly, that person that done it, and it takes time.
1: To send that person to jail for a long time.
3: Oh yes, I, I before now, if that person gets a life prison for murdering a baby, because
1: you were given a life sentence, weren't you? Well, you, well This, is a, my, this is
3: a life sentence for me. For the rest of my life, my little baby girl is gone. I've only one little daughter, and she's twelve. She's the eldest. Three boys. I had two girls. You know, and we, we she used to go shopping. She no sister to go shopping with. Mm. You know, she no sister to just to, to talk to. She loved her. She and do you sim- feel,
1: do, uh, you know, do you feel any sense of responsibility <laughs> yourself that she wasn't with you and, you know, you say she fell down the stairs, no. you know, not everybody is saying that. Mm. They're saying that, that there was injuries inflicted mm. upon her that broke her It finger. was an accident. Yeah, I know. I know you were saying mm. that, but. Because she was were,
3: walking. She was one and a half. Yeah. She started to I, walk.
1: I, oh, I know. And, and listen. She followed her poor sisters. I know, but. You know? But you But you, you would say. She did fall down the stairs. You didn't have anything Three to do steps, with it. Three steps, no. It was an
3: accident. She just followed her her own sisters. Yeah. Because yeah. I was making lunches. Because all my kids go to school. And I had plans for her to go to the crash and then go to school. Mm-hmm. And her, her future.
1: And wh- when she fell down the stairs, was there a medical examination of her? You no, know, show- she
3: kind of lifted her leg. So I knew that she went she lift her leg and she won't lean on it. I brought her straight to the hospital and it broke my heart. I spent a week inside the hospital with her and she got cured. I used to wear balloons, I used to feed her, take her for a walk, you know, in the little buggy. The little buggy. And look at me, Mo, they had little fishes. It was brilliant, the hospital was brilliant at oh, the time when she was out there that time. For the repair of the bones. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah.
1: You are very strong to be able to get through a conversation like this because you have to relive it all again yeah. those moments in the hospital holding her body
3: yeah exactly
1: um, may she get justice
3: may, uh, may she get justice and I hope someone come forward and their guilty conscious come at them and walk straight to the car's bar and say look I done it and whoever they are whoever they are just get their conscience. may their conscience come at them and walk into the guard station and say I killed that baby.
1: You know? Okay, well listen, try and mind yourself.
3: Mm. I'm strong for my kids. Absolutely. She's always in my heart. I know she looks down at me. I know she's above there.
1: And what do you say to her? I'm sorry. I
3: always talk to her. I always say, my poor baby, I know you're here with me when I'm walking because I see feathers and I know she's walking beside me when I see feathers. White feathers. But you're not holding her hand. But That's I'm not holding That's what want hand. to be doing. That's what I want to be doing.
1: Do you say sorry to her?
3: I often said sorry that I was not there. But I know she forgive because she knows it's not my fault. You know? Because okay. I was not there if I was there it'd be a different reason. She wouldn't be she'd be alive. We were planning holidays. Plan to go to the beach for her. She never got to see get to do that. That breaks my heart. Sorry.
1: Okay, girl. We leave it at that. I won't put you through anymore. Thanks, Bridget.
3: You're welcome. All I want is just justice. Okay. For her to rest. I know she's not resting. I know for a fact she's not resting until she gets this justice. And I really want to know why they done it to my baby. And what did they done to her. It was like a football the way I see my baby. It was like a foot it was, she was like a football to them that they kicked her to death. Whoever done this to them. And I'm very sorry. But I won't be happy till justice is done. I won't rest. I know she's with the angels and our Lord above in heaven because I'm a very religion young one but this shouldn't be this is not right <laughs> i take a baby like that and the way they've done it to her beat her to death
1: tell the truth <laughs> no. come forward
3: no. come forward that's what I'm no, doing. That's come forward Okay. No. thank you be- thank you very much
0: Call the Neil Prenderville Show now, 0818-104-106,
1: Red FM. It's all so sad. Uh, I wanted to share that conversation with you because I think it is one of the most beautiful tributes um, from a loving, grieving mother that I've ever heard uh, to a daughter whose life was cut cut so short and so brutally. And our thoughts, I think, are, I can say this on behalf of all of us, are with all of the family members and friends, but... um, uh, I particularly want to uh, wish the very best uh, to Bridget, who must be in an awful, awful state, um, still living with the loss of her beautiful, beautiful daughter, and indeed uh, Dad Michael as well. A beautiful tribute, as I say. Uh, lines are open at one eight fifty sorry all over the place this morning it 's hard to recover from a terribly terribly sad case like that oh eight one eight one oh four one zero six by phone and you can text. Uh, 86 uh, Talking of our children actually um, it's very disturbing uh, as the years go by it gets tougher and tougher on families and this is one that almost snuck past me this morning the fact that 73 childcare services in the city and county have closed since 2017 so in 5 years we've lost 73 childcare facilities that's according to TUSLA figures that have been released I know Donna Colera was talking about it this morning there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of less childcare places in the city than there were five years ago. And a lot of it is to do, apparently, with uh, struggling with recruitment and retention of staff. Uh, many have left the sector during the pandemic and got all their work and have never come back. And, of course, that in itself then is causing huge hardship, preventing people from going out to work, as Donna Clare was saying. Um, and I don't know how you're going to reverse that. I don't know how much of it has to do with the amount of money that's actually being paid to people working in childcare. I believe it is quite low, and the evidence of that over the years in this program is that it is quite low. Because we had been talking yesterday about uh, you know people uh, you know going to work or trying to get a job or wanting to work, and I was telling you about you know this um, this course now. It's an apprenticeship for people in the bar trade, particularly in in hospitality, because they're struggling for people most definitely in hospitality, but not just in hospitality. So text coming in as well yesterday. Uh, from people who are saying it's the very same in the um, hairdressing industry. Impossible uh, to get staff, apparently, by all accounts. Um, And one of the texters was saying, can't understand why. It's not just plumbers and electricians or bar staff that are struggling to get apprenticeships. I can't get a trainee. And I know of other salons in the same boat. I have a relative in the Mon AG who says that none of the girls in her year want to go into hairdressing. And an apprentice earns money right away. They start on about 10.50 an hour, and it only goes one way, and that's off, up. And I hope to have a chat with Efa, who's got her own hair salon, uh, on that topic with regards to apprentices. But I was talking, you know when it comes to me- mechanics? I was done a mechanic who runs his own business last week. And you often wonder how they structure apprenticeships in this country. I don't know if it's the same. Imagine it might be the same for electricians and plumbers and carpenters and all sorts of different trades like that. But he was telling me that you could have a really good apprentice, really rocking, just a natural for the job. And he's he's working. He's working like as if he's a full time member of staff, right? Uh, he's working away. and You're employing him and you're running a tight little ship. And then all of a sudden, as part of the apprenticeship, the apprentice has to go away um, for six months uh, back to the study modules. So gone from the job for six months. Um and that leaves the business then, the mechanics um business, a staff member down. That can't be replaced, obviously, because your man is gonna come back to the job, but it's gone for six months. Do you remember years and years ago when it used to be like the one day week? You worked four days and the fifth day was the um you know, the study part of it, the books, if you like. They call it the four day week, I believe. A moment of correction on that, but I think it was split much better. It made an awful lot more sense and whipping somebody out of the job for six months. I mean, what's the employer supposed to do in that regard? Anyway, text 0868-104-106 on that one. From yesterday's programme on the cost of living, um, tell your callers that the three-party regime running this banana republic only cares about cyclists and their own interests. The cost of living does not affect them; they just don't care. That's a texter responding to callers yesterday, who were just angry and had enough. Somebody else, likewise. I'm lucky enough to live; I'm, I'm lucky enough to be living rent and mortgage free. All I have to pay for is ESB. As I also have oil, but I refuse to buy oil due to the price. I get minimum wage every two weeks. I just about manage to keep bills paid and keep food on the table. I don't understand how people can live paying rent plus all of the bills just on minimum wage. I just don't know what to do. As I said, I feel I'm one of the lucky ones where I am at the moment, but I have no idea how people can afford to live in this country on a minimum wage. It's just not possible. Living paycheck to paycheck is impossible and impossible at all to ever save. Um, I had, I would have zero left at the end of a month, and that's somebody not paying rent or mortgage. I hate it when people in social housing are being classed as lower-class people. Some people from yesterday's programme are under the illusion that people in social housing are poor, paying little or no rent. Myself and my husband get up at 6am every morning for work. We both work long hours and are assessed separately for the rent. It will be the same for our kids when they start to work. We tried several times to get a mortgage, but just couldn't. Another one or two here on this. Will you please remind people that they have the power to protest and the power of election to run the parasites out of the doll once and for all, says Dennis. Morning, Neil. I just joined your programme yesterday morning during a ladies' conversation about costs of school. Uh, I can't come on, but I just wanted to say that my son's school voluntary contribution for the year is €250. Uh, Morning, listening to your show from yesterday, would you mind letting people know that the Sick Poor Society on Dunbar Street might help families that one of Cork's oldest charities, says Frank. And just one or two more, none of the three quarters of a million people on the poverty line are on social welfare. Uh, They get everything free. Uh, It's the working people that are on the poverty line. When you talk of three quarters of a million people on the poverty line, you should mention it's working people that are on that poverty line. And with regards to the worries yesterday about the Tracker Mortgage, no worries there if you're leaving Ulster Bank with a Tracker Mortgage and going to another bank. The Tracker Mortgage is protected. They, nothing can happen to that. Text 868 Pick up the phone on 0818-104-106. You mentioned, I heard you mention uh, on the program this morning, the A&E. Yes, I did. 75,000 people walked out of the A&E units and three and a half thousand of them Our kids, and that's just in the last 12 months, 75,000 people said, nah, I can't take this. Heard you mention that on the air, you should have been in the CUH last night, and the mercy wasn't much better. The CUH A&D was full of kids with this viral vomiting bug sitting on their parents' laps. The doctors were in short supply, and the nurses were left to the administration of medicine. That leads me on very nicely actually to a conversation that I had yesterday afternoon with Dr. John who's back in Canada now. If you think that the health system is in a shambles this might give you an indication as to why. Dr. John good morning. Good morning how are you? Thanks for taking the call and I appreciate the time difference in Toronto Canada. I was very interested by the message that you sent because um, you were actually here in Cork for something like six years studying medicine weren't you?
6: I was, yes, at did, UCC.
1: And did you do all of your studies here and qualify here?
6: I did qualify in Ireland, yeah.
1: Okay. And how did all that work out for you?
6: Uh, it was really, I, I loved it there. I mean, living in Ireland was one of the best times of my life. I, and I really found myself in Cork and UCC. I fell in love with that place. I wanted to stay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Unfortunately, circumstances wouldn't let me.
1: And what were those circumstances? Why, why couldn't you stay? Why, why were you, as you say, kicked out?
6: Well, um, so how when we qualify, uh, UCC um, or even Ireland HSC, uh, those that applied through CAO and EU students um, are guaranteed intern positions in Ireland. Unfortunately, that's not the same case for international students that graduated from UCC or anywhere in Ireland. Um, there's only a handful of spots that are available to us, and almost like 70% of us don't, or 80% of us don't get. Any intern position okay. in Ireland, but did which you? Is unfortunate. Uh, no, I didn't.
1: So how come you ended up working in in CUH in Cork and in another hospital setting in Kerry?
6: Oh uh, well, so th- that was our placements. So our, uh, when I was in medical school, they would place us through hospitals in in um, Cork or anywhere in. Where UCC um, has university teaching hospitals.
1: Okay, okay. So you did all of those placements, etc., etc. Studied for the six for the six year six year period. Mm -hmm. Did you qualify then?
6: I did qualify after my after my uh, time at UCC in Ireland. Yes.
1: And did you have to bankroll all of those six years of study?
6: Um, I'm sorry. What does that mean? Did you have to pay for it? Oh, yes, I did, yeah. International fees, which is quite hefty.
1: Do you mind me asking just a little bit about that as to how much money that would have been to, I guess, you know, the Irish education system and the Irish health system?
6: Sure. It was around uh, €34,000 yearly. That's not including um, accommodation and food, etc. That's just tuition.
1: So that's €190,000 in tuition fees alone. That's right, yeah. Okay. And you... Then wanted to stay. Uh, I I haven't even mm-hmm. put on what it would have been the cost of your living here. It could have been easily. I mean, could have been the same again.
6: Yeah, well, close to yeah.
1: That's nearly half a million euro.
6: Yeah, it was quite expensive.
1: John, that's an incredible amount of money. And and what mm-hmm. happened? What happened at the end of your placement and the end of your of of your the tutorial aspect of the six years?
6: Uh, So, well, after our exams, um, we qualify. And after we qualify is when the intern matching process starts. So um, they would let us know where we're placed uh, and if we're placed for international students.
1: Okay. Okay. So as a bit of a lottery goes on then, there's 40 available of the 300 interns for people outside of the EU. And you weren't lucky, no?
6: I wasn't lucky enough, no, unfortunately. And did you? I mean, inter- every, every student. Is- sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, like, every international student, like, we're, we, you know, we have to work as hard as any Irish student as well. So, we all have, Mary, we all have, you know, the, the guts to work in Ireland, but some of us aren't just lucky.
1: And what, would it have been your plan to, because I'm really interested in this, would it have been your plan then to stay on and practice as a doctor in Ireland?
6: I, yes, that was my plan. So working as an NCHD and then maybe working as a consultant in Ireland.
1: Okay. And were you going to specialize in any particular area?
6: I was wanting to specialize in pediatrics.
1: Gotcha. You know that there is a yeah. chronic shortage of doctors and consultants and certainly people specializing in pediatrics in Ireland. You know that, the waiting list for kids.
6: Yes, it's enormous.
1: Yeah it it really is enormous it's well over 100,000 children and a million on the waiting list it's probably even higher than that it's that bad yeah. over a million people waiting for appointments um cuz it's kind it's kind of bizarre because I, I believe and you can just bring me up to date on this that a lot of people who mm-hmm. actually study to become doctors here go through the process here go to college uh, go through the internship in hospitals then leave Ireland to to practice abroad don't they
6: yes yes many of my friends uh, that I've qualified with are actually leaving Ireland this year to places like Australia the UK some of are going to the United States
1: so we lost you
6: yeah uh,
1: how do you how, does, really how do you say. how do you feel about that
6: I feel pretty crushed you know I, I fell in love with Ireland like it was it's my home. Like, I love that place, and the fact that I wasn't able to stay—by like it wasn't—and it wasn't my choice. Just it hurts. It hurts. You know, it just feels like Ireland doesn't want me.
1: You said in your message to me, they kick us out the first chance they get, and because there's a shortage of doctors, I'm not so sure what the HSE is trying to achieve. Um, you were somebody who clearly wanted to stay.
6: Yeah, for the long term,
1: and make a difference. I also
6: wanted to. Yeah, I and mean, I always wanted to teach at the university as well to future medical students.
1: And while you were here, you worked through COVID in CUH, I believe. Is that right?
6: Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. Okay.
1: And can I ask you about your experience within the CUH itself? What are you prepared to tell me about that? Because I know you were telling Seamus things like that it was overrun and under pressure, but that would be expected to <laughs> during COVID, right?
6: Yes, it was. So... Most um, NCHDs and even consultants, too, they were other close contacts or, or came down with COVID. And um, so that would put pressure on the remaining staff. And it was already understand pre pre-pan- pandemic. So you can just imagine how much pressure these doctors, nurses, healthcare workers were in.
1: And how were you treated, say, by management with regards to, say, did you get salary? Did you get time off? What were the shift lengths like?
6: So as medical students we don't get paid, um, it's, uh, it's just placements that we have, it's compulsory to in order to gain qualification, um, but the NCHDs and the consultants were very understanding about our situation, like if we, were, um, we, have, we had close contacts or if something happened they were very understanding towards it.
1: So it's not a case that people who you know, go through the college aspect of it could be judged on merit or ability to get an intern position, no?
6: No, it's uh, it is it is merit somewhat is merit for the international students, but you know, considering we all qualified and um, we have the same degree across Ireland, um, I don't I don't see how we would differ from any other student.
1: And would you say there were many who went through the college aspect of this outside the EU who spent nearly two hundred grand in fees only to find nothing at the end of it? Do you think that's commonplace?
6: Oh yes, it's very common in Ireland. It's it's um, most of my friends international friends from um the united states or uh malaysia canada weren't matched into our into the HSC system
1: and they also would have wished to stay and practice
6: yes absolutely yeah we were all crushed when we found out we didn't get in
1: crushed is is a very apt word actually because i can't make sense of it in a country that's crying out for people who want to stay here not train here and go abroad but train here and stay
6: yeah I really wanted to stay, um, and I made you, some great friends. And, yeah, and, and how
1: long ago? Place. How long ago was it that you actually had to leave and go back to Canada?
6: That was last year. Okay, so very how, recent.
1: How have you readjusted? I mean, are you practicing now in Toronto?
6: I am practicing in Canada, not in Toronto, but in Canada. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm adjusting fairly well, and I still miss Ireland uh, quite a bit. But I mean i'm I'm back on my feet,
1: okay, so can I ask you what did you like about Ireland so much that you miss?
6: It's the people, the people just they are just amazing. I made amazing friends, everyone's just so welcoming and nice, and you know it's a beautiful country. you got so many places to visit that i I'm from the city, I'm from Toronto, so I'm used to buildings, cars, and whatnot. but Ireland, you go into the countryside, it's just beautiful, you know. And beautiful people.
1: And did you do a lot of that, checking out the countryside? You know, did you like to hike, to walk, to swim, to fish, to climb mountains, things like that?
6: Yes, Well, we had free time, um, which is rare. But, yeah, we, uh, my friends and I would just go explore Ireland, like the Ring of Kerry or Banner Beach and um, Chile, stuff like that.
1: And, you know, the training that you got here, can, is that, does that qualify you to, to, to work and to practice as a doctor you know, with with Irish training overseas.
6: Yes. So we have to uh, do um, licensing examinations in other countries. But our medical degree, because it's a European degree, it's recognized worldwide.
1: And would you have known in advance of coming here that there was a slim enough chance of you getting an internship and ultimately practicing here?
6: Yeah, I did know that coming to Ireland
1: You did, you know, you did Yeah yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it seems to be a big money earner though, doesn't it, for the education system and the college system
6: Massive money earner, yes
1: See, I can't get over the fact that you're back there wanting to be here and we're crying out for people like you I just can't get my head around that
6: Yeah, me neither, to be honest I really want to come back And will you come back at any time? Uh, if Well, I can't stop training here um, because I'm I'm still in the middle of it. But maybe if I become a consultant and a lecturer, uh, I might just apply to Ireland and see what I can get.
1: Well, you love it and you miss it. And, you know, from our perspective, you're more than welcome to come here and to work and to live here and to contribute. I hope that happens, John.
6: Oh, thank you so much. I hope it happens, too. OK. Um, I
1: want to come back. Yeah. Listen, if, if that does happen, feel free to stay in touch. Yeah.
6: Of course, yes. Thank you so much, Kennedy. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak.
1: Not at all. It's great to catch up with you and perhaps we'll talk again in the future. Look after yourself. Have a good day.
6: You too. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Talk to Neil Prenderville
1: now. 0818 104 106. Courts, Red FM. So from an apprentice doctor, if you like, who then went on to qualify, obviously, and uh, want to practice here, but isn't able to, uh, to all sorts of different apprenticeships, you could have, you could have a master's in hospitality and you'll never get paid more at entry level than in a factory. Hospital, hospitality employers never ever address the fact of wages being so low. Just go and have a look on LinkedIn very rarely will they tell you the wage before the interview. They wonder why there's a massive exodus in the industry then. It's all about wages. So more on that uh, after 11 o'clock this morning. But you know something? Some things never change. A post this morning on the Ballyvalan notice board. And am just wondering, is there anything at all can be done about the two tiny little ponies being ridden around Glen Heights and Ballyvalan the last two days by two young lads? First of all, they're too small to be ridden. The lads on them are bigger than the ponies. And secondly, I'm watching them out the window beating these poor, misfortunate animals up and down the road with sticks. One of them is on the horse's back while the other is pulling him back by the tail. The horse is clearly distressed. Before it's said, anyone living here knows you can't intervene if you want your windows or car left intact. These little ponies are tiny little things. Guards notified, can't do anything about it, they say. No one answering in the animal's home in Mahan. I wonder what else can be done. And so do I, because in spite of talking about it over and over again, and even the staff at Apple Computers coming together and emailing me at length with regards to what they witness on a daily basis, nothing seems to change. We're back after 11. Text 0868 This
0: is The Neil Prenderville Show. Text and WhatsApp 086-8104-106. Cork's
1: Red FM. Meanwhile, in happier news, right across this week, we have this wonderful trip to Paris for you and whomever you choose to take with you, courtesy of Cork Airport and Welling Airlines. It's a fantastic city break. Return flights of both of you with Welling Airlines. Hotel accommodation in Paris for two nights. You'll get 200 euro voucher to spend the loop at Cork Airport. you do serious damage with that. Uh, access to the Aspire executive lounge at the airport uh, before you board the plane and free parking for the duration of your trip so you can text or WhatsApp your best holiday moment or memory. It can be from childhood or adolescence teenage years, whatever the case may be and we're getting a massive response to that so I want to drill into it uh, between now and midday. We'll do lots more besides but also your emails and calls on that. So it's a weekend break for two we will have a daily qualifier every day this week and pick a winner on Friday.
7: I'm Lano O'Connor, Red FM News is first for local, national and
5: international news and you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on Red FM
0: 104
1: to 106, Red FM. This is the Neil friendville Show. Uh, by email, thank you, Gary. He says, Listen to your show yesterday morning about the overtime being paid to Cork City Council staff. Uh, back in 2018, I was spending time with a sick relative in Cork City and I noticed a council truck parked at various times of the same day. Upon asking my relative about this truck, I was informed that the driver was a council employee and this was going on for years. I brought it to the attention of the council that one of their employees was spending a large portion of his day at home with the council truck parked blocking the road outside his house. I took notes of the times and dates and forward all of this uh, to council, also bringing to their attention that it was our tax paying, well, it was our tax paying this person's wages only for him to be sitting at home. Uh, To date, no action has been taken, only last week. I've seen the same truck parked at the corner of this person's road. For a number of hours, I took pictures, forwarded them on, and still nothing has been done about it. This is unacceptable in today's world. Thanks for taking the time to read, love the show, and that by email to neil at uh, redfm.ie. Um, so that was to do with the high levels of overtime being paid at Cork City Council. See, the auditors were in to Cork City Council looking at how they managed their business because it is a business at the end of the day and they were looking at overtime they were looking at the paper trail and getting value for money as to how cork city council spend their money they were somewhat critical of the electric vehicles that were bought by cork city they were very critical of the robot trees wondering my words not them but what in the name of god possessed you to buy those things um, without doing proper due diligence on it but city council said well we couldn't do due diligence on it because it's new technology. And we thought it was a good thing to spend over 450 grand on them. And there they sit. Expensive benches, I suppose you'd say. Anyway, text 0868-104-106. Uh, Pick up the phone on 818 106 Just staying with, I mentioned earlier on about um, block release for trades people, right? And we were talking about apprenticeships and what have you. Because they're thinking now that a good idea would be to start an apprenticeship course um, or a new Kind of apprenticeship for hospitality and bar staff. So uh, I want to get the thoughts of uh, you listeners on this one. A mix. Uh, sorry, Dick is standing by. First up, Brian. Brian, good morning. Neil, how are you doing? Good, my man. Because you have your own business. You're a tradesman running a trades business, isn't that right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Do you mind me asking which trade? It's actually I'm a fabricator welder by trade, and then I went back to college and done the advanced welding as well. Okay. Do you take on apprentices?
7: I tell you, I spoke to you about three years ago. I had that she took on an apprentice, and they never walked out with us, you know. Um, but at the time, I searched high and low for apprentices, and I couldn't get one. So I actually took on a guy that had just came out of the army, um, and it has worked out smashingly for me. Okay, okay. Um, I couldn't get couldn't get a better guy. To be fair, he does exactly what I need him to do. Nothing more, nothing less. He's here every morning, and and did you? And you did you, you train him?
1: Are you training him?
7: No, 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 no. He came in like. Kirsten's actually older than me he's he's nearly 50 at this stage and he came in and he does what see I do the fabricating so I work from home I have my own workshop at home I work yeah. in a small workshop so for two of us to be welding in the same shed wouldn't work Yeah. Um, at the time I would have taken on an the apprentice and trained him up proper um, would, have, would have trained him my way let's say of doing things would have sent him away to college when his time was needed um, because you must remember like a lot of apprentices they come in the first year Neil you're sweeping the floor you're cutting steel um, you're only tending to guys. But and the you same to college, could be
1: said for an apprentice, the equivalent could be said about an electrician apprentice or a plumber or a trade, painter or for a bricklayer. Any
7: trade. No, maybe not. Not so much for electricians and plumbers because you're actually on the tools a bit more. You're probably learning that little bit more. Even carpenters, you're learning a bit more because, like, in our trade... You know, you're going to be thrown in with the trades when it's the start. Yeah. And he's, you're going to be his dog's buddy. No yeah. matter what you look at, it, you're he's lackey. Yeah. But after you go to college and you learn how to weld properly, how to fabricate properly, when you come back, you're an asset to the company then. No, I just was chatting exactly with the mechanic who
1: said that the block release was six months for The Apprentice has the,
7: the first block release the, the new system, which came in. I was actually the first apprentice to come through the system in the new system for fabrication back in 98. Um, I was registered. And I was actually registered. I, if I didn't chase it myself, I would never have been registered. Um, and I mean, basically, I'd had no papers at the end of four years. But because I chased it myself, I got registered. And... Um, and it worked out smooth. I could have done the junior seniors I could have been the last apprentice to but do but why the wouldn't it seniors. be one
1: day a week instead of this six months business gone from the job
7: there's of no benefit to you Neil to realistically if you go into college for a day to, how many fellas are going to miss that day what happens if the company is like shutdowns prime example you need all your bodies on site for a shutdown so if you have shutdowns for three, four, five weeks you're not going to let your apprentice go for one day a week not a hope in hell that you're going to need go yeah, but you him have, him have to let them go, go for six
1: months you're a job down
7: well, you are, but you know what? When he comes back, he's a bigger asset, yeah?
1: But they can't hire anybody in the meantime, and I'm told it, that the businesses is... They they
7: a lot of the bigger companies
1: will have an apprentice
7: coming through. Let's say when you've got a first-year apprentice coming through, the first year, realistically, Neil, you're, you're, on, you're not on the tools. So you're just hitting your second year, and you're going to college, which is the right time for it because you've got the basic knowledge of it, and then you're taking on another apprentice coming in behind them. So when your apprentice goes off From block release You've another fellow Starting in behind him Doing the very same job He was doing anyway mm, mm. So when he comes back to his first block release, he's, he's an asset to the company. He's making money for the company then. And they have two block releases after that. Of and where months. is
1: more learned? Is more learned in the in the college or is more learned on the job? The
7: first block release is essential. Realistically, it is essential. You learn an awful lot. Um, and you know what? You're one-to-one with an instructor. You've got 10, 12, maybe 15 lads in the class. You're all in the same level. So you're learning more. And you know what? You learn from the lads that you're working with because not everyone... Like steel fabrication, you've got different fabrications. You've got stainless steel fabrication. You've got heavy structural steel fabrication. You've got wrought iron fabrication. So you're all learning different things, do you know? Um,
1: well, I can like tell you, think, there's a breakdown in the papers that talks about the amount of skills that we need just to stand still is 51,697. That's what we need. We're short. And in your area, which is fabrication... One thousand eight hundred and seventeen qualified fabricators are needed now just to stand still.
7: Uh, I don't think there, there's a demand there at the moment, Neil. But what happens when it goes quiet? Where are all these Where are all these princes that should, no, just? No, the, the there's
1: a fifty thousand black hole at the moment um, for construction workers, and I've just, just
7: completely come here. You can't get a plumber at the moment. You yeah. can't get a painter. You can't yeah. get an electrician. Yeah, and do you know what? They work, they work hard. They out. Do you know the, like? You're you're on a job in the morning. We see it here ourselves with the, with supply demand, with demand for supplies. Now we've been lucky this year. Last year was a disaster for supplies, but this year has it's it's kind of cut back an awful lot more. And we've got people ringing us. And do you know what? You're on one job, and like we're only a small company, but the big companies would have to have bodies on seven or eight different sites, and some of the sites need them more. So. Like it's grand at the moment. There is a demand there for at the moment. But what happens in four or five years time, these offenses are coming out, they're qualified, the next thing things go quiet. Are, go are, you go tra- tra- limit, are you guys in
1: the Australia and Canada and places? But are you guys yeah. expecting things to collapse again, like they did? Well,
7: before? No, no. Do you know what? To be fair, I don't really. I, I, there's a lot of scaremongering there. But people are spending their own money. A couple of years ago, people were spending the bank's money. Now they're spending their own money, money that they recouped during the,
1: the COVID. But that's not limitless. And that's not limitless cash. Like I'm hearing from some retailers saying, just that. Oh yeah, there was a lot of money being spent during lockdown and all sorts of stuff, savings and pub payments. That's gone now.
7: It's gone, but come here, at the other side of it, then too, you have all the pharmaceutical plants. Like, people are working in these and they're still making good money. They've made good money during the lockdown as well. A yeah, but I just don't think people lockdown. have
1: a limitless supply of savings, like, you know, I'm just wondering Oh, Definitely
7: much. not. But, sure, come here, the wages haven't increased at all. You must remember, like, tradesmen are demand, doesn't demand follow, but doesn't the wages haven't increased. It's materials and and supply has, has
1: increased. Well, like, that's, we've had five true.
7: increases in galvanising since September, yeah. and there's another increase. Next month of but 50%. you're passing it
1: on, Brian. You know the, pa- the Well, we have to. We have to put it into a price, and so we have to amalgamate
7: it. Yeah. The price of diesel and everything else has gone through the roof.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, um, you're, you're not a charity if the price of pay, oh, no. the materials we go up. To,
7: we have to amalgamate it into the price. No, but you know, you can't. Like, if I price the job back in January, no, I'm only giving people four weeks notice or four weeks new on a job. If I price a job today, I'll only stand over for four weeks until they give me the go ahead. So are the if trades now the saying
1: when they quote for a job are they're saying I'm giving this price now, but it's only valid for a month?
7: Build the providers will only give it twenty four hours.
1: What really?
7: Build the providers will give it twenty four hours because that's all they can stand over. And come here, it's it's gouging in a lot of sense because it's like the diesel. There's plenty of diesel in the country before they ever mal- or before they ever pumped up the prices. But sure, everyone has to take the hit on it then. But sure, how much in the country, and sure, the garages at the moment are pumping up the prices again because they're told, oh, the prices will going to increase this week. That's they're a very grey area, library.
1: I have to say. I think the builder oh. suppliers, though, are caught in the middle because they have to get the supplies in, and they're getting it from somebody else, and they're the middleman, yeah. like, and they're left. Well, sure.
7: It's like any, any suppliers or any 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 company, Neil, at this stage. Like, if I need steel, I order it. But I'm paying for the travel. If I'm going to galvanising, I'm, I'm burning diesel. If I go measuring work, I've, I'm using my own car. It's my time in car, but I'm, I'm spending diesel. If I don't get the job, I'm out of pocket.
1: Yeah, yeah,
7: yeah. Do you understand? So, I like the, yeah. need with apprentices, to be fair, like, if I was an apprentice, in, if I want to serve my time in the morning to the plumber or an electrician, I'd want to be out of that's where, the, that's where the money is. Like, Neil, you must look at it. Plumbers, electricians money, and, and I, carpenters. We yeah, need 7,000
1: plumbers. We need 7,000 electricians. Um, I'm sure there's a section from carpenters here somewhere on this sheet. I'll find it. at some Yeah, carpenters. We need 7,350 carpenters yeah. and joiners in this country. Because there's
7: plenty, there's plenty work. If you, like when I was an apprentice, I used to be, I used to be doing a couple of foxes as well to make up my wages. Because my wages, I started on £60 a week. I used to talk to you, that, to my mother as an apprentice. mm do you know, and yeah. I was living, No, I don't drink or smoke. So I was grand at the time. I had no problem surviving a £30 a week. If I'd done the half day on Saturday, i got an extra £12. Do you know, which is small money. But, like, my money as an apprentice was smaller than what they're getting now. But at the same time, if you want to make money... Plumbers, electricians, carpenters. But if there is a like demand for them, right, and they're
1: not coming through as apprentices, right, and we need 7,000 electricians, 7,500 carpenters, 7,000 plumbers, 3,500 plasters, 4,500 painters and decorators, 2,000 bricklayers, we need all of those in the next five, six years. Why does it just come in from overseas? Is the money that bad that they don't want to work here?
7: Are you, are you looking at the same quality? I don't know, are you? That's the You're not new. You're not, it's like this, there's a saying in the trade. Good work isn't cheap. Cheap work isn't good. Yeah. Do you know? You get what you pay for. If you want a 5-8 f- job, you can pay a fella 5-8 money and you get a shit job and then you have to get a fella come in and, and solve the problem after. Like how many how many plumbers have gone into houses, absolutely wrecked them and then have to go to company. Yeah, but I'm sure but
1: that look- internationally, all across Europe, the um, yeah, level of standards... Don't get
7: me wrong, I've, I've worked with guys that came in from Poland and they were electricians and they were top-notch but I've also worked with guys that were supposed to be electricians and I wouldn't get them plugged in the kettle. And
1: they were cowboys, yeah, gotcha. Okay, okay. <laughs>
7: and they had papers to back up their trade. But, you know, those fellas here, they're, they're, they're saying they're plumbers and they're not, they're not related to a plumber. <laughs> you know, so like, you good work isn't cheap, cheap work isn't good.
1: I know, yeah, yeah. I like the term 5-8. I haven't heard that in years. Thanks for reminding me of that great saying. Thanks, oh, Brian. No, we Thanks, my man. News. Take care, cheers. cheers. Good luck Take to care. you. Dick, Bye good morning. Bro. Neil, how are you? I oh, good. Is it is it true that you're driving a
8: crane?
1: Yeah. I assume you're on hands free. Then are you? Yes,
8: I am. I am. I am All right.
1: I am, okay. I, I know. I, no, I know you're driving a crane, but I know you have stopped. In fairness, here. So, did you go through an apprenticeship for that? No, this is a, it's, That would be a
8: different kind of a thing. Crane um, driving would be a
1: course that you'd do. You did what?
8: It's a course. You do a course on, With, and on uh, the same as you do for a 360 or a teleport. You just
1: do a course to get your ticket for to drive the crane. Gotcha. OK, gotcha. All right. OK. I think it's more right. your it's more your son you wanted to comment about, wasn't it?
8: Well, it's about apprentices overall, because apprentices, a mechanic, a plumber, a carpenter get five euros, 20 an hour. That is an absolute joke. you give a babysitter more than that. It is an absolute joke.
1: Yeah, but for... But,
8: um, if they um, pay them properly, they get them. But they're not paying them properly.
1: And how long would they be on 5.20 an hour? For a year, is it?
8: For a year, 5.20 for the first year, it goes up. I know the next will go up about 100 euros for the second year, another 100 for the top year. A hundred
1: a a one? 100 a what? 100 a week, 100 a month, 100 a year uh, or what?
8: They go up a hundred a week.
1: Right. You see, by the end of the apprenticeship, though, they're then making big money.
8: Yes. but well, just to get them there is the problem. That's why you fellas are not going into apprenticeships. Because if you're getting, we'll say, 250 euros a week, and you're running a car, diesel, tax, and insurance, by the time you've got that done, you have nothing for yourself. You are working for nothing.
1: How long is the apprenticeship, As say, for instance, as an electrician?
8: Electric would be
1: four years. But can you so, not can they not see the big picture? After those four years, that's when the big money kicks in.
8: We we understand that, Neil, but the problem is to get them there. There is a business pulling up because they cannot live on the money. They will get more if they still
1: stay on the door. But can they not look at it as if this is the same as four years in college, for instance? You're not paid to go to college.
8: But why don't the government subsidize Apprentices. If an apprentice is working, they're not paying him dole. Give him 150 euros a week for the first year. Give him 100 for the second year, and give him 50 for the third year.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. It would make sense, wouldn't you know, it?
8: I mean, it does make sense. I mean, like, at the end of the day, they'll have friends set of trained properly, and they will give him work for the rest of their life. They will not be defending on the state. Yeah,
1: I know, I know. He's an apprentice electrician, and he'd be on more money than most at 6.20 an hour, um, they can't see yes. beyond the four years of that small money, and there's more money to be made in other professions and other job careers. So they don't bother with the trades because of that. But if they were subsidised by the state, the
8: because it's it's too so hard to get there. Yeah, and the an apprentice mechanic is on five hundred an hour. You're going to get your car service. A lot of the work that's that car is done by an apprentice. And I tell you one thing: the girls will charge you more than four twenty
1: an hour. Uh, but I have to tell you now, Dave just texted me by WhatsApp a screenshot here. He says the first year of an apprentice is eight forty five. The second year is ten eighty six. The third year is fifteen sixty nine an hour, and the fourth year of the apprenticeship is nineteen euro thirty one.
8: They are not paying
1: us. Really? That's for, that's for the ele- the, and he says that's the, for the, ele- the, he says that's for electrical
8: elects still around slightly better money, but there was no way he's on that kind of money. Well, I mayb- on that kind
1: of money. Okay, well, maybe he should go back and check and see why he's not, you know? Just just out of curiosity, because that's what I'm, I'm being sent, given the four different apprenticeship um, um, wages per year, you know, per hour. Like, would you say that after yeah. four years, 19-odd, an hour is good money?
8: It's okay,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
8: Okay, okay. All right. I mean, make to get them to to get them to where the money somewhere reasonable. By the time they're taxing and short, their care, I put these in their care every week. Then those are okay for nothing. If they were at home, scratching their butts. They'd get 181, they get the dole every week. they get a medical care, they get everything.
1: Well, if we're so short of the trades, um, keep them off the dole, subsidize the apprenticeship, yeah. and we'll have apprentices coming out the yin-yang, not a bother in the world. Okay, good points. Thanks for that. Thank you, Dick. Cheers. Text 0868 Call's on the way.
0: Get it off your chest.
1: Call Neil Brenderville
0: now on 0818 106 Red FM. And
1: so we were talking about apprenticeships to boost pub staff. It's an apprenticeship course for bar workers and bar managers. It's launched in, in Limerick um, because 9 out of 10 hospitality businesses says they have problems recruiting staff. Many employers linking the shortage to a lack of training. <laughs> I think it might have more to do with the lack of money with regards to what it pays. But an email I got in touch with me said, I heard you talking about the apprenticeship for bar managers and bar staff. Keep my details anonymous if you decide to share this. I've heard a lot about this new bar management program over the last few days. And I wanted to get in touch with you in the hope that people could be made aware of why exactly bars and restaurants can't get staff. I was working in a well-known establishment in Cork County where pretty much all of the staff except for the manager and the chefs were on minimum wage. We also had short staffed. We were also short staffed which meant that some college students as well as students in secondary school were expected to work one to two evenings during the week as well as all weekends. Bear in mind that when working on a busy Friday or Saturday night you were looking at finishing at around 3 a.m. There were numerous occasions where I would finish on a Saturday night into Sunday morning at three o'clock in the morning and I'd have to start again at midday on the Sunday. God forbid you wanted a Saturday night off you'd have to book it about three weeks in advance and normally have to use your hard-earned holiday pay. Now fast forward to when I was promoted to to a manager and got a so-called raise. This meant I moved from minimum wage of €10.50 to a salary of 23000 per year based on a 45-hour week contract. My only days off were Mondays and Tuesdays. So some quick maths would tell you that my new salary worked out at approximately €9.80 per hour. So basically, I was scraping by and would normally have about thirty euro to my name when it came to payday. I just want to stop that email by being promoted to manager uh, this individual 's salary per hour actually dropped from ten fifty an hour to nine hundred eighty an hour because he had dedicated work hours of forty five hours per week. His money went down on top of this. The place I worked in, like many others, would make staff pay full price for all the food when working. So you had 17, 18-year-old students coming in at 3 or 4 p.m. on a Friday, working around 11 hours with a 30-minute break until 3 o'clock in the morning. And if they wanted to get something to eat, they'd have to pay an average of 18 euro for a pub or restaurant meal. My employer also wouldn't allow staff to bring food in from outside the premises as there was no proper staff area to eat. So some member of staff happened to get their break, say late on a Friday or a Saturday night, had to get a takeaway or had brought food in from home, they would have to eat it outside. I recently changed jobs and now I work sociable hours and I have no intention of ever going back into the bar restaurant business. I genuinely feel sorry for the many people that are trapped in the industry with no other options. Publicans and restaurant owners are quick to moan about how they can't get staff But why, in the name of God, would people give up their social lives, weekends and sleeping patterns for such ridiculously low money? Thanks for reading this and that email to Neil at RedFM.ie. Pretty much sums it up for maybe one of the main reasons why people won't go into hospitality is the hours and indeed the money. Wonder what Paul Montgomery of Clancy's has to say about this. Incidentally, they're not talking about Clancy's in that email, not by a long shot. Uh, Paul, good morning. Hang on a second, let me get my line. There you go, Paul, can you hear me now? I can indeed. What do you think of that? I mean, in all fairness, that really shoots from the hip. Yeah,
9: I mean, that, that, that's, that's someone's experience, that I suppose, that things, things the treatment of that person doesn't seem, um, well, is that's something that, that, we, that we have here, you know? I mean, yeah. like I would say that the majority of people, nearly everyone that's, that's working for us, and I'm probably maybe 250 people, that people like to work in the industry because the opposite of what that person is saying is that there is a social scene for a lot of 19, 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds who are the main age category of the people that are working for us. And we we have a fair mixture of breakfast, restaurant, lunch, evening, food, nightclub, you know, scenarios in in, in our four venues. But
5: would, would it be
1: fair to say that by and large in the industry, a lot of the staff are on minimum wage? And they're transient workers. They're kind of just floating through on a passage because they have another career choice in mind anyway, is yeah. it? What I,
9: what I would say, Neil, there's, I don't think there's anybody in our organisation on the minimum wage. Very few, if any. So the majority of people know that if you want to hold on to your good staff. They are all on better than the minimum wage. So... You know th- there's very few people you know on less than eleven euros an hour that are working pretty full time hours and that rate goes up to twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen depending on, on experience and uh, and still some of those people are on are part time in that they're going doing masters in college and and everything else you know so and the trend has probably changed a bit too um, but are you accept
1: are you exception to the rule do you think that you would have people on sixteen I, I, or seventeen I, I, euro I, I, an hour i I don't know but we we do hold on
9: to our staff i mean like Yes, we're recruiting now because some people are going away after the summer. We find some of our part-time staff are heading off on their J1 visas and they couldn't go for the last couple of years. So we have some really good people going to Canada, going to Valencia. I know two or three people are going next week. So we're recruiting. and But we tend to hold on to the majority of our staff because I think the, big, the bigger part of working in, whether it's Clancy's or pan like is the camaraderie that they have, you know, and... Like uh, yeah, but nice camarader- camaraderie
1: doesn't put food on the table or petrol in the car, Monty. Um, you know, it, it 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 doesn't. But
9: if if you're if you're going to college, you know, and your parents are subsidizing you going to college, and you can work twenty five, thirty hours a week and earn an average of twelve euros an hour, I mean, that's you know, that's that's a huge help. You know, it pays for the socialization and it, it pays for a lot of other stuff in college as well and helps with the accommodation. So that's, like, in a university city like Cork, I know that what they're talking about, the example there, somewhere in the country maybe, but in a university city like Cork, we're always going to have a bountiful amount of staff and I presume how? other cities things are the same.
1: But how do you make it a career choice? Like many countries well, across the world are, now, America, now. Spain, yep. Italy, France.
9: Now, now you're talking, and that, that's a key part, and I heard your other... Um, beforehand about you know the electricians and the apprenticeship and i have a nephew and player who's d- doing electrical apprenticeship and I-, I hear what that person is saying and it's i'm delighted for for my nephew and i'm delighted for him that i know that in two years time he's going to have a great career what he has so i equally think and i have a son that i hope will go into this trade he's only leaving start now and that course to me sounds right down his barrel you know mm. because he, they need a bit of formal structure rather than just drifting into the trade. That's probably a, a lot of what, you know, is coming up at the moment. And I think that, you know, in years gone by when everybody didn't go to university, in fact, very few went, yeah. you know, those old pictures here of Clancy's in the 50s and you see gentlemen, young gentlemen in their white uniforms yeah. and coats and ties and they look wonderful. And it was a real, you know, real career for them at that stage because, and it goes back maybe Neil, to society and the way we've moved on in that now ninety five percent of people go to some farm at third level and they don't think of careers in in you know in, in places like bars and restaurants and you know other other trades. <laughs> so but will what, it be yeah?
1: But, but will it recruit? Okay, so you get, you go through the apprenticeship for say bar staff and becoming bar managers and you know, running establishments. Yeah. But will they be paid well then? Well,
9: I mean, I there, there, I, I think the the will right. I mean, if if you could if you could come into the industry and you have some form of training, like like what's happening and what we're, we're we're talking about this morning, and then you can you can start off, you know, and maybe look to earning as good as a wage as you would, you know, in the equivalent in any other industry. I think. The answer is yes. And what's more is you have a lot of those people that managers who will have ambition to own or lease their own venue. And that's probably more important to them if they come into venues like mine and they say, look, we want to be a bar manager. We want to be a system manager, manager, and we have ambition to have our own place. I mean, that's really part of the training. And. There is an old saying that there was never a good manager that didn't become an owner, you know? So, like, that's probably part of what, what happens, you know? And they need that experience working for other people and they need experience in the cities and seeing all that's involved in a place. So th-
1: how are you going to get around at 3 a.m. in the morning quitting time, though? Well... Neil, I've been doing it for twenty five years. Yeah, um, but Cork, you, know, you, you know, you're 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 an owner operator. You see, that's the difference. I know, but
9: we we, we we've had we've we've had people who've, who've been with me for nearly twenty five years, and they have families, and they have, they're around, okay, They might have to change their lifestyles a bit, but like you know, th- there there is a piece that you don't expect any manager, a senior manager, to work more than four nights a week. You know, and even at that, they'll have at least a weekend off a month. So like. It's not that bad, you know. I mean, there's there's one picture painted that you read out in the email, but the other picture is if you're guaranteed three nights off a week and and you have a lot of daytime, it is conducive to family life, you know, because you do get to do a lot of things with your family and kids that you might not if you're working 7 in the morning until 5 in the evening. So there's, there's another side to life as well that can be quite enjoyable, you know. I mean, the big thing is, obviously, is that, if you, if you can finish in good time, in reasonable time, even if it's 3 or 4 a.m. and you're not having a drink okay. and you keep away from that. I mean, that's, that's the big part of it.
1: Could I just ask you finally, do you think that our tipping mentality has a lot to do? I think in some countries the wages are quite low, but the tips are very big and they supplement the, uh, the earnings yes. big time. Does yes. that need to change?
9: Well, I think the good thing about COVID in terms of tipping, it has changed, Neil, and we see it here. So that, you know, it came into the table service. Like, we'll say this summer now, we're back to a lot of table service, especially in Conway's Yard, and the younger people want that. So they're getting their cocktails delivered to them. They're, they're, you know, getting the four drinks, and they're paying there and then, and they do include tips. So, like, I think that has, I think the, the table service part, and sitting at your table and serving your table for the past two or three years has helped that, and I think that it is encouraged, and I think you that... Know. It will, it will be it you will know be there, there is a cover.
1: fear in Irish society that a lot of the owners don't allow the tips to go to the staff uh, is that yep. is is that accurate do you think or is it
9: well I, I if I was speaking for Princess Street here and known Clare's Business next door, and Tory across the way and Rossini's net all the staff do well in their tips and, they're, and they're, they're quite happy so I can only speak for places I know and that I don't think that any legitimate well run venue would do that to their staff
1: ok feel free to stay there if you wish uh, Paul Montgomery only okay. chat with my Michael O'Donovan uh, for the VFI. Michael, good morning. I think you were at the... Lo- You've got your own pub, of course, in the South Mystery, but you were at the launch of this apprenticeship in Limerick, were you?
10: I was. I was there uh, last night for the launch between Griffith College and ourselves, the Vintners Federation, of this new uh, bar apprenticeship. Is it a
1: good idea, or window dressing? I mean, ultimately, it's wages, isn't it, and unsociable hours?
10: Yeah, look, if you're going into the bar business, you have to be prepared for that. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, you know, when people are out socialising, we're there to work and look after them and entertain them. Um, But this was designed by uh, publicans. And, you know, we saw, I suppose, uh, prior to COVID, that staffing was even becoming an issue. And we wanted to put structures in place that when people got promoted in business, that they could go do a course uh, from the bar and, you know, give them... Uh, a degree course, which is uh, what we 've set up now eleven a uh, level seven degree uh-huh. course, and it covers all areas of the bars, so like they get training in licensing laws, bar operation communication skill, food and beverage, you know personal development, the accounting side of the bars so it gives them a, a, a rounded uh, i suppose background to what they 're doing and at the end of the three years they 'll get a, a degree and look um, they can travel the world with it if they want, but hopefully they 'd stay here in Ireland and work and as Paul alludes to there it will hopefully make our industry more professional going forward.
1: Yeah, who pays for the course?
10: The publican pays for the course for the for the student to go on. At, uh, it's a three year course, it'll be over different modules but I suppose the good thing is the student would earn a wage while they're working in the bar and they would be going to college part time so they get the best of both
1: worlds. But there's no guarantee the starting wage then, the traditional starting wage after the apprenticeship ends, is there?
10: No, but Neil, the one thing I would say is, look, at the moment, as Paul alluded to there, you know, we're in a battle to hold on to our staff. The the email you read there, you know, I would say that's from very olden times because I don't know of any publican that's operating it that way. You know, minimum wage... I, I don't, you know, I meet publicans every day and be talking to them. I I haven't heard of a publican paying a, a member of staff minimum wage. I no, know, I know that, for, but, for maybe,
1: yeah, but maybe they were paying it before COVID. Maybe manners were put on publicans because of COVID. Then you, know, you realise, you look around, you can't get staff anymore because they've yeah, either gone overseas or they've gone into other career choice and you're panicked. Uh, I wouldn't say we're panicked
10: but you know like I think things have changed and I think you know people that are now in the industry want to work in the industry and they want to be rewarded for working in the industry and I think that's what's happening and I think this then is leading to development of this degree course. Um, I think, you know, wages isn't the, the biggest factor that we have at the moment. And, you know, publicans are even changing, as Paul said, their rosters, you know, to accommodate people uh, and giving people time off. But obviously we need a, a cohort to work when people are out as well because that's the core of our business. Okay, Cause I'm
1: out of time for now, but just to point to both of you, actually. I'm reading this morning in the papers that restaurants and bars are considering legal action over a potential loss of trade over the summer. Because 17,500 beds and hotels and guest houses and B&Bs have Ukrainian refugees in them. You guys are worried that your income across the summer will be decimated because there'll be no tourists because they can't sleep anywhere. What are your thoughts on that, Michael?
10: Yeah, look, it's a, it's a big factor. I think we're lucky here in Cork, we have a, a lot of hotels where there's accommodation but there are parts across the country um, where, you know, look at Liston Varna, for example, the hotels have been taken up by Ukraine. Oh, no, Cork here uh, as
1: well, and East Cork and West Cork and places like that. Yeah, look, it, it, it does affect with Cork
10: but not to the extent of other places around the country, um, you know, where there's no accommodation, where there's nothing, you know, at least we have accommodation unfortunately prices have increased and that may be a or for tourists but look I suppose we're in exceptional times with the but are you uh, looking have you happened? got
1: the begging bowl out looking for uh, no
10: not yet uh, 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 Neil but look it's something that we are I suppose listening to our members around the country and it is something that we're I suppose we're watching at the moment
1: uh, finally Paul what do you anticipate the summer to be like and it's too early to say what bookings might be like
9: well, I, I know that one advantage we have since we have all these res diary systems and how I'm booking systems that we'll keep on to from cover times. I mean, bookings look good, Neil, uh, and we've had several days in the last week or two, midweek, that we're full, you know, over three floors, the rooftop and that. I just think, going back to what you said there, and it answers this question as well, and what Michael is saying is that there's always going to be some crisis coming up. Like, we just have to entertain people. That's our job. And we keep going back to that. Let's plan a good show for people and food and drink and get, encourage people to come out and have a good time and that will that will resolve most issues if people you know we're we're Disneyland for adults like we need to entertain people to give people a break from their jobs from their work and whether it's a party birthday party or a graduation or whatever it is or just a simple night out or watching Liverpool in the Champions League final just give people entertainment and they will come out and we'll, we'll have a good summer
1: that's the quote of the day for me the pubs are Disneyland for adults and now you've got the out, outdoor drinking laws extended across the summer yes. so if we get a bit of sun fantastic yeah.
9: Yes, sun is coming keep our prayers set and we'll
1: be fine okay thank you gentlemen much obliged to Michael O'Donovan for the VFI and Paul Montgomery from Conway's Yard and Clancy's text 0868104106 would you work if you had a choice, would you work in hospitality? Would you work in the bar-restaurant business? If so, why so? If not, why not? Text 0868-104-106.
0: The Neil Brenderville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday.
1: 0818-104-106. And because uh, I gave quite an amount of time, and rightly so, to the uh, to Santina Cawley's cruel um, death, um... I didn't get enough time to do a lot of other business this morning, which was my intention. Uh, But tomorrow will be a better day, and so will Thursday and Friday. And we have a wonderful weekend break to give away, courtesy of ourselves in Cork Airport and Vueling Airlines. It's a fantastic city break to Paris with return flights for two from Cork uh, with Vueling Airlines, hotel accommodation for two nights in Paris. You get 200 euro voucher to spend in the loop at Cork Airport. Car parking for your car is free at the airport if you win this prize, and you will stay in the Aspire Executive Lounge while awaiting your flight. So we're asking people, big response to this, your most memorable holiday moment. Morning, it's Sarah in Cove. My most memorable holiday experience memory was in Las Vegas. Myself and my husband went for five days, got married in the Little White Chapel, as you do, went for dinner in Gordon Ramsay's restaurant in Caesars Palace Hotel, and then the next day we flew down into the Grand Canyon in a heliocopter it was an amazing experience that i'll never forget we then went into onto new york where it was absolutely freezing a big change from vegas but i wouldn't have changed a thing thank you sarah one or two more a memorable holiday moment for me was three years ago when i went with my boyfriend to italy it was our first trip together as a couple very romantic very warm full of happiness and love The trip itself was just memorable because it made us realise that we were going to be together for life, says Carmen. My most memorable holiday is when I went to Paris and was wearing a long skirt. I walked over an air vent. And had a very Marilyn Monroe moment, except I wasn't as prepared as her, and the skirt went straight up over my head. I had to reach over my head to be able to bring my skirt back down again. I'd love to go back to get a chance to restore my dignity, says Niamh in Cork City, or else to go back and to do it all over again. (laughs) To the phone lines we go, Shelley, good morning.
11: Hello. How are you? This is
1: actually another wardrobe misadventure, is it? <laughs> it,
11: it, it is. Yeah. With 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 a couple of uh, you know sports equipment involved as well. All right.
1: We had a couple of those yesterday. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs>
11: (laughs) So basically a buddy of mine uh, we're in our 20s and we're off in Cyprus on holiday and we got two lilos and down to the beach on the moped and blew up the lilos and in the sea because it was too hot on the beach and took off the bikini tops to tan the back without lines the next thing a wave hit us and my friend Gail lost her bikini top. So because we'd come down and just, I had a skirt and she had a pair of shorts and the bikinis, that was it. We'd nothing to wear going back so we ended up having to tie my skirt round her. We decided the lilos would be the best way to try and protect our dignity, because I was driving the 50cc moped, um, you know, and she was she had the two Lilos under her arms, and we're driving back from the beach and the lilos are whacking us all over the place, there's horns beeping everywhere, it's, and to this day I'm so still it's laughing it's still
1: it. an inflated lilo, like...
11: Oh, it's, yeah, we said that we wouldn't deflate them because it might offer us a bit of dignity, but that didn't quite work out because as we were driving, the lilas were just flapping all over the place.
1: Do you realise how dangerous that was?
11: Yes, I do, but this was <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's so, so funny. I'm back in it... Up- Yeah, looking back on it. Well, I think maybe
1: a one-piece swimsuit is the only answer there, isn't it? (laughs)
11: Well, I think absolutely. Well, I was lucky that I retained the top of my bikini, but she, she didn't. And I, I still remember exactly what I was wearing because it was a purple short tie-dye skirt and we had to tie it round her, her boobs on the
1: back. caller yesterday was talking about coming down one of the water slides and losing her bikini top on the water slide.
11: Easily done. Easily done. Oh,
1: I love it. I love it. I love it. Thanks, Shelley. Cheers for now. Hang in there. Let's see what happens. Aileen, good morning.
11: Uh, good morning. What
1: have I got here? Thanks for your lengthy text. It's always better to chat. You were off to Ventura for your first ever holiday, was it?
12: Uh, well, it was my parents' first ever holiday. Yeah, yes.
1: it was about yeah. 10 or 11 years ago. Okay, okay. What
12: happened? Uh, so I brought my parents. My, my parents had never been away. That was fine. And I had booked into an apartment complex. Was it your present to them, yeah? It was a present to them, yeah. was. It was their wedding anniversary. So I brought them over and my dad, you know, he was a bit reluctant to go and we went and we got chatting to a a woman. She was out, with the, out of her apartment while we were at the pool and they were chatting to her for the first couple of days and my dad would go off. He kept telling my mother, oh, I'm going off looking for fishing tackle, but he was going off looking for these. Happy hours, so it's <laughs>
1: lots of happy drinks. Happy hour points. <laughs> so,
12: happy hour points.
11: So this is the Maybe you could holiday. go to a
1: fishing tackle shop that also was a pub. You know those ones, fishing Absolutely. tackle on one side, pub on the other.
11: <laughs> so
12: uh, it was the third or fourth and the woman came over to us and she goes, "Is your dad okay?" I was like, "Yeah, what's after happening?" She goes, "Did he not tell you?" I said, "No." I said, "Is is there something wrong?" And uh, she said, um, well, don't say I told you. And uh, she had gone into her apartment and she was getting undressed or whatever and she heard this snoring. And here she looked in her bed and my dad was fast asleep in her bed and she had to wake him up. <laughs> but to this day, we never told him we knew because he was be too embarrassed. But I, I, I always said to my mother, I said, when he's gone, I said, I'm going to tell everyone the story. Um, but I'm I'm in Wexford, so. Hopefully Has he passed
1: away done. since Celine?
12: No, no. But I told my mother what <laughs> he does. I will tell everyone, everybody. But um, to be fair to him. You feel safe back?
1: as you feel safe as a Wexford girl telling the story in Cork, do you? Absolutely, I
12: wouldn't tell it on a so Wexford he, radio station. So he, um, he
1: go out for his few happy hour pints and come back for a snooze in the afternoon, but sadly went into the wrong apartment.
12: Yes, because they all looked the same, to be fair. And the numbers were quite small. And then we were back about two weeks, and he had a bit of a fall, and it turned out he'd really bad cataracts and never told (laughs) us.
1: The reason he was in the wrong apartment.
12: Absolutely, that was the reason. (laughs) So, yeah, the poor woman had to wake him. She was like, what's the noise? Uh, <laughs> was around, he was fast asleep on her bed I love
1: so, it yeah. I love it that's a Faulty Towers three. moment really that's like something that would happen in an episode of Faulty Towers thanks for that Aileen hang in there Colin good morning hey good morning okay 2003 you and a bunch of lads from Tipperary where'd you go?
4: so we headed off all on our first big lads holidays kind of in between our styles, t-shirts on the whole lot sun cream nowhere to be seen uh, headed off to Hersonesis in Crete. Right. So holiday, holiday gone great. Say, drinking all night, sleeping all day, had a bare amount of food to, to line the stomach, stuff like that.
1: No time uh, on the beach, no. Just the pubs and sleep, is it? Well, there was a couple, couple of mornings we woke up on
4: the beach and so stuff. We had sunburns, the, the usual crack. Oh, you? But, uh, <laughs> on the beach. So about, about five five days into the, the holiday, I arrived back to the the room that I was sharing with another lad. There was a handwritten note on my bed saying, uh, you've got the room to yourself now, winky face, uh, I've gone home. They're like, what, what's, this, what's this all about? What's that mean? He's a bit mad. So, didn't think anything of it. Next day, got up, no sign of your man. Uh, so, we started getting away well working at that stage. He was nowhere to be seen. So, we rang his mom, like his home phone back in Ireland, and uh, no sign of him. No, no, he's on holidays with the lads. He won't be back for another week or so. So at this stage, we were starting to get a bit worried or whatever. Uh, but that was grand. Eventually, we, we heard from him. So what had happened was he just got fed up with the whole thing, wanted to go home, uh, headed to the airport, asked for flights to Ireland. Didn't matter where in Ireland. So they said they had flights to Ireland, flights to Belfast. So off he went, anyway, with the clothes on the back, a Celtic jersey and shorts, flew into Belfast on the 12th of July of all days, uh, in a Celtic jersey, Celtic jersey and shorts on, oh, and the flip oh, side. on the twelfth so, of July. <laughs> so yeah, sunglasses on, big burnt head on him, and uh, right now he needed to get back to Tipps, so uh, hopped on the bus and down to Tipperary. Didn't go home because his parents thought he was on holiday, so ended up going to a casino in Clonmel for a couple of days, what? and it was one of one of the people working in the casino who we eventually got in touch with who said he was in there, he was safe and sound, but he yeah, was just that. Uh,
1: but you can't wait, stay in wait, the casino wait. day and night, can you?
4: <laughs> yeah, you can go out, you can get left uh, food, and then you can go back. Oh, casinos are 24 oh, 7. Right, okay. Yeah, you can indeed. But uh, yeah, the <laughs> whole day had bro- quiet accidents, broken noses, sunburns.
1: Wait, wait uh, a second. The, re- the rest of you stayed on, obviously, and had of numerous you accidents. Did. And <laughs> We were after
4: paying for the all.
1: They'd and you had numerous accidents. So tell me about the accidents.
4: Oh, yeah, there was, oh, there was just lads, drunk lads driving home last year. We won't walk up that house to the hotel. We'd rent a quad and God. crash quads and God, broken oh. noses and mess fights and whatnot. But uh, it was just a holiday that had everything. So it was a sure <laughs> lads holiday. But yeah, it didn't happen ever again after <laughs> that.
1: There, were, there was, there was do, no more of them. Do your man win any money in the casino, incidentally?
4: Oh, he was actually very good at poker, so he he did. I don't know whether he made enough to recoup what he had wasted the, the hotel. Oh, but I had a free room; I had a room to myself for the rest of the night. All holidays, right, so okay. It was, it was and he probably missed
1: his mammy, did he? he was lonely for <laughs> his mammy?
4: He, he he actually did. He was he was a real homebird, so that that was the real reason behind it. But we did frame the the note, and it was up in the local pub for a while, and ever since gone missing. But uh, I say he. He, he he took it off the wall in the pub but no it was great every time I still get up uh, every time We, we
1: it was like, oh, it was your <laughs> <laughs> great story <laughs> then, yeah. cheers my right. man regards to you all in all right. Passage West thanks Colin hang in there let's see if I can squeeze one fast one and Christina good morning was it can you hear me alright yeah I can hear you was it the first family holiday was it or what
13: yeah, it was the first family holiday, the uh, family out in Spain, and my daughter, she's 80 now, and she's still embarrassed by it this day, uh, today. today, um, We're out in Spain, had a day, and <laughs> we're walking by the pool, and she had a can of Pringles in her hands and she didn't see the pool she walked into the pool. <laughs> and <laughs> she managed to save the Pringles so it was like the Statue of Liberty was just like literally standing she up on her head was the, was the, was the Pringles her head above the, the... her head and body was <laughs> underneath the water but the Pringles were saved <laughs> You're joking! Me. <laughs> Whatever you do, save the Pringles.
1: Never mind about me. <laughs>
13: <laughs> it <was> so funny. <laughs> she probably
1: just she probably just strolled into the water.
13: <laughs> yes, yeah, so we're just because we're all talking, we're just like a scene, and I'm so funny. And to this <laughs> day, like, she's so so embarrassed. And she was like, I was telling her yesterday, that uh, I entered a competition. She goes, uh, What did you say, Mom? And I looked at her and I started laughing. She goes, oh, mom, don't say you just did it. And I go, well, Sha- Shakira says it was actually the only funny story I actually could think of. <laughs> I said, but could you not tell where Shakira, uh, Sinead walked into the door of the hotel room without realising eyes and at the door of the stair? And I go, no, it wasn't as funny as you was being a Statue of <laughs> Liberty. So,
1: so you guys find it funny, thing. but to this day she doesn't like.
13: <laughs> no, she gets annoyed. But it is quite funny because she saved the Pringles. I can can see her
1: under the water. Clearly she can swim. There wasn't a threat that she was going to drown or anything. But the most important thing to her was to save the Pringles. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever buy her a box of Pringles or a tub of them and just leave them up on the table?
13: (laughs) Well, at the time, we couldn't just stop laughing. So even though I suppose that she was probably drowning, it was so funny. Like, we did both this together, but she She was in shock. But to this day, like that's nine years ten years later and she's still embarrassed oh, she was man. hoping that her name wouldn't be mentioned but <laughs> <Too> late <laughs> it late now just so, <laughs>
5: right.
13: it was so funny like it was just Statue of Liberty so every time we see the Statue of Liberty on TV we just look at her and start laughing laughing <laughs>
1: thanks Christina that's fantastic well said well said keep those stories coming either text 0868104106 or email them to neil at redfm.ie we'll pick a winner after the break talk to Neil Prenderbill now 0818104106 104106
0: another thing Cork's of course
1: Red do with hospitality bam. is the cost of hotel rooms at the moment I'll come back to that tomorrow but do share your stories please have you ever worked in hospitality would you work in hospitality what was your experience text 0868104106 I'd love to hear from you from you email neil at redfm.ie just finally colin yes i'm gonna put you into friday's final right for the fantastic right. city break to paris with cork airport and welling is there any way you could track down if you win you could track down enda who legged it from the holidays to go with you
4: <laughs> to go with me i don't think so he'd kill me you in touch <laughs> anymore are you um, my brother actually saw him last weekend and that's how it just brought up the whole conversation <laughs> again. But no, I'm, not,
1: I'm down in Cork and he's up All right, well, it. listen, whoever you, if you're lucky enough on Friday, choose whoever you want. It won't be Ender. Uh, that's unfortunate. Oh. We'll chat again then. Thanks for the story. you are in Friday's final, all right? Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Lines Bye-bye. will stay open. Text 0868104106. Email neil at uh, redfm.ie. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow.